Director's Club. Let's plan it out. Over here at the Director's Club, we use an episode to take a look at a director's entire body of work. Looking from his established classic films to hidden gems among his filmography uh, to some underappreciated examples of his work. It can be pretty surprising to see the different themes and ideas that come up when you manage to take a look at a director's body of films all at once. Come join us for the uh, film journey. I'm Al, and uh, Brad is joining me out for the journey this time. Hello, glad to be here. Sorry you weren't able to join us out for Jalafsky, but we found a nice director to go and calm down and give a nice sedate um, uh, uh, viewpoint <laughs> right. for this particular episode. Jalofsky seemed a little dark, so I figured I, I'd come back, you know, as we were welcoming in the spring here in Chicago and, and a nice day and, and talk about some lighthearted stuff, right? Exactly, yes. We're, and and we, we're, lo- we're looking to, uh, today at a, at a, um, uh, at a very mirthful, uh, a joyous filmmaker whose scope manages to reach from, like, like the depths of history to the farthest reaches of the universe, and all through a filmography that uh, barely physically leaves the New York City area. Um, uh, this is uh, filmmaker Darren Aronofsky. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah Aaron Aronofsky is uh, one of the uh, more recent uh, auteurs that have uh, come out in the... Uh, filmmaking world like i kind of put him over in a con- kind of a contemporary to something uh to a director such as uh david fincher yeah that's a, a good analogy they both have this uh great skill uh that they bring uh and another contemporary um uh paul thomas anderson but whereas all three of these directors are amazing at what they do create fantastic films Aronofsky is a little different in that he's far more obsessed with his subject matter, and the others uh, work through various genres and can be a little more varied. But with Aronofsky, uh, it seems like his work is is through a particular lens of uh, obsessions and faith. Mm. He's like a um, he's a director who is kind of focused. Not just he's not just obsessed about his subjects but his subject does seem to be obsession aronofsky seems as we'll as we'll look through his filmography how he takes like uh, singular ideas through through these different works and he brings them to the fore there's he he makes us as an audience aware about this particular about these particular obsessions and 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 holds holds the particular um um obsessions to our scrutiny as an audience it's not subterfuge like uh like something that uh anderson would uh paul thomas anderson would do first film like which kind of explodes onto the screen with just those levels of concerns and possibilities is his um uh brilliant uh, debut uh pie in 1998 um it's a story about a um a young mathemat- mathematics genius um max cohen 
who is uh, living a very isolated existence in his apartment where he's developing like um, a computer system that he um, will hope to show, be able to predict events moving in the stock market. He works under a, a really strict set of assumptions. The idea that there's patterns all over in nature. And the course of the story shows upon like how far he is uh, willing to go to just try and find uh, these patterns for the stock market. But he might actually go and stumble in upon the ultimate pattern. <laughs> and and it's a film which is really looks at like these ideas of connectivity on different concepts, which is just kind of, I found really, really startling because this is the first film I can see that combines in a look at mathematics, nature, and Judaism <laughs> that uh, in a combination I've never seen before. Right, and uh, with you being uh, such an avid fan of math, you've mentioned that, and me being Jewish, we should be able to cover a lot of the things uh, discussed in Pi. But before we do that, I think uh, the look of the movie is interesting to note because it does have a very unique look to it. It's uh, his, As his first uh, full feature-length film, it's uh, low-budget, and what he does is film on a... Uh, uh, he uses a, the film stock in a very particular way that just about takes out all the grays and makes the visuals of it not just black and white, but high contrast black and white. Yes, it's a black and white film that was that uh, was that had the film stock manipulated in such a really interesting way. Not just to make sure that there's like very little, if if almost no shades of gray whatsoever, but there was a particular technique that he had that Aronofsky had mentioned, where he by the the film stock had been like refrigerated, and and the result when you watch it is not only is very very interesting because it is not even that it's just all black and white, but even during a black field or an all white field, it feels like the actual elements of white and black are vibrating, like they're cha switching between all black. And all white, and this is a to me is a, just a really really great example about like how, you know how film can like work on its themes on like an atomic level. <laughs> um, it's this is about a mathematician. It's about a, a, a person who's like can go and try and rep, use numbers to go and try and rep, re represent like the whole like all like nature and and uh, the actions of people in society, and yet. The film itself is almost treated by by ha by looking like it's alternating between black and white and vibrating between the two. To me, as uh, conjures up nothing so much as like a binary display, like like the displays from our monitors just come in from um, from pixels that are either switched on or switched off. But to switch on and off in a refresh in a refreshes fast enough so we get the illusion of motion and video. Right, and it also has the. Uh side effect of allowing a low-budget film to look like a far higher-budget film because uh, in addition to the film stock, there's a lot of very creative editing happening. There's a lot of uh, quick cuts, uh, creative angles. It, it, it's really a film that looks like no other, and because it looks so unusual, uh, it, maybe a precedent might be Eraserhead. 
uh, but but it, it, they're very different kinds of films. But it looks so unusual that the 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 scene, the low budget filmmaking disappears, and it looks like a bigger production than it might actually be. Over like uh, his small budget and his limited initial setting, Aronofsky has already shown that he is able to like create like a whole movie world, like and and use that kind of use that kind of world. To like explore like these really big concepts and and huge ideas within like uh, the physical scope of an of an apartment and its and the local neighborhood, um, like he is um, it is so inventive and and um, creative in how he takes like the uh, takes the patterns that you can see through the um. Uh, through like through spiral through uh, spirals and and like uh, the patterns of of light emanating through leaves and the like the the like horizontal and vertical lines through like um, uh, uh, subway grates and and uh, and subway train lines and have them just reflect and keep going out and echoing upon each other. Yes, when uh, when you talk about the echoes, I think of uh, the stock market. Uh... Um, ticker that uh, occasionally uh, you see on screen that is is shot in such close up that it it we know what it is but it also looks fairly unreal. Yes, mm-hmm. and it does, and that echoes the the binary comment I was making I was I was making earlier. Like r- you when you look at the stock ticker really close up, what does it look like? Just circles that are like lit, like turn off on off on. It becomes like this like the, a flashing a flashing orb. Right, but it, it but it sometimes it takes a perspective change to have them resolve to like the letters and numbers that show the movement of our economy, and the uh, the computer he uses, which he calls uh, Euclid, is is it doesn't look like any computer of today, yesterday, or of the time. It's uh, it, it it shot almost like it's a uh, a scene from Alien, and uh, at one point a. Um, uh, like a plug is introduced uh, to the plot as as a MacGuffin sort of this is the thing that he will need to solve his uh, number mystery and it really just looks like an everyday plug <laughs> but the way it's presented uh, and the way the actors respond to it 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 seems more special and uh, you know the core of this movie as with a lot of Aronofsky films is uh, with the main performances. And uh, Sean Goulet, who plays uh, Max Cohen, is as great at maintaining a almost constant state of frenzy, panic, and uh, inability to, to function in life, which is what we're going to see with a lot of these characters throughout the films. And because uh, Max is so obsessed with the idea of uh, order in the universe through mathematics, he can't uh, function with other people. He has a neighbor, a young lady who might potentially be a romantic interest, but he uh, doesn't want to be touched. He meets people, but he can't uh, he can't function with them at a, any kind of a normal level. Right. His only uh, his only uh, real support is like his former his former professor. Who had worked these um, uh, previous level of experiments until he had succumbed to a stroke, and now he's in his own enclave uh, that uh, Max vi- that Max visits, um, 
uh, where he has uh, where he has uh, several sources of respite, like his his many his many books, his um, uh, his uh, favorite fish, Arikbides, uh, 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 and um, uh, and his Go board. Right, which also uh, we see them playing uh, Go a few times, and the patterns on the board tend to echo uh, the. Uh, spiral patterns that are uh, often brought up in the film is kind of this uh, perfect shape, something called uh, the golden spiral, mm-hmm. which is a concept that, in addition to having, you know, the, saying that this uh, the, this shape occurs in all kinds of places throughout nature, from the shape of a she- seashell to, as they say in the film, to the Milky Way itself. But as a filmmaker, I, I have to think that Aronofsky also was a student of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo and noticed mm. that the uh, golden spiral is used over and over again in Vertigo as well. Oh, how interesting. I mean, and it's uh, obviously uh, Hitchcock is no stranger to obsessions and, uh, and people being driven to extremes. I mean, Vertigo... Vertical is kind of a very much the ultimate example and maybe the ultimate personal statement about obsessions, even the obsessions of the, that, the, that the director had himself. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, like, uh, what Aronofsky does, I mean, he, uh, it's, it, he traffics in that kind of level of spirals, but Hitchcock's spirals in Vertigo are more, they represent the character's unconscious. Mm-hmm. And whereas... Aronofsky is bringing this stuff to the fore. It's about a person who is who is actively fascinated, and and Gillette, Sean Gillette as Max Cohen, I feel does just a great job of of making us interested in in what in what he has to say about mathematics, um, uh, which is you know a, a usually a very dry subject that people are, get turned off away, but but uh, I find and maybe I'm biased because. I am I am interested in. I find that he's made it that he makes it compelling. I mean, what do you what do you think about his like t- uh, takes on the on the golden ratio and the history of the different mathematicians that he brings up in the story? Well, like I said, I'm I'm really out of my depth uh, when we uh, when we were discussing math. What I am able to do though is become fascinated by his own fascination. So yes. a lot of the technical math terms he used kind of go went over my head but at the same time one that was very familiar to me is this idea of of math as applied to biblical studies and the way that he uh meets uh with a uh a hasidic uh jew there you know again set in new york in 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 a jewish uh, and multicultural neighborhood and he makes the point uh, after finding out a little bit about Max that in, uh, in in the Torah, every letter, every Hebrew letter is associated with a number. And then if you take Hebrew words, apply the numbers uh, to those letters, mathematical equations can result. And so some uh, who are involved in uh, Kabbalah, which... Uh, is Jewish mysticism and, and should distinguish what we're talking about in, in Pi, the, the Judaism discussed here is Jewish mysticism and not the traditional religion. But what some have said is that so many uh, codes 
and complexities can result from these from taking biblical passages and applying numbers to them that it's almost proof itself of God because humans wouldn't have been able to create something so complex. That's the idea that's being trafficked here, as well as the idea of uh, the name of God, which according, and this is also based on Jewish mysticism, is a word that is uh, 216 digits of numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, when I I remember when I first saw it, I was and the um the Jewish angle really blew me away because I was of course used to mathematics using representing like just the things we expect mathematics to do like uh, like you know re- representing like how how things move how like the uh, like motions of the motions of the planets like general like engineering concepts but to have like when the um when this um uh, Hasid- uh, um, uh, um Hasidic character the um uh Lenny Meyer character goes and says that the number for ma- for mother is one number and the number for father is another and then the number for child is the sum of those numbers that was a really cool moment for me right and then imagine thousands of examples just like that throughout the torah so yeah is there any that like any that come that come to mind for you that like that that um uh, that also work in that way well there are but i i don't have uh, have access to them uh here for this podcast so yeah i mean it's right it's a way of like taking these like taking uh like these characters become numbers and then the number that the fact that the sum of the numbers actually give a meaning behind it is is a really is a really really cool concept for me um uh like i delve into the extent that there's actually a bit of a a a study called the philosophy of numbers which is the idea is that does does the number four actually exist or is it just a way that we use to say that there's four of something Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, where where does the meaning where does the meaning come from? I mean, and and yes, there's actually a branch of philosophy that just explores that idea of like, is there's is do do these numbers have a value in and of itself, even if there's no even if there's no people, and and that ties. I think one of the cool things about pi is it ties in into what the ideas of these numbers mean. What is Max's mo- ultimately? What is Max's motivation? What does what brings him to go and like try to make motions of try to go and use the stock market as a way to show that there's uh, there are these patterns? Well, one thing it's not is to get rich. He he makes clear that that is not his motivation. I think it's what he says. It's he perceives the world around him as a place of chaos, and and the camera work emphasizes this. The everything we talked about before as far as the the look of the film so the only way in his mind that he can live in this chaotic world is to bring order to it and he views mathematics as the path to it it's really outsiders and others that are more interested in ways that mathematics can a affect the stock market or b help discover uh, the, the actual name of God. Mm-hmm. So, but, but Max seems more interested in the argument that 
like you were talking about the reality and unreality of numbers, is the argument that the numbers are the only thing that's real. It's the only thing we can trust. And that is what he's holding his shreds of sanity on because the the man the man has some issues he is constantly having uh attacks uh, and and hallucinating and needing uh needing needing medicine to uh get him uh, back on track and as the films goes on the the, uh, the attacks get worse and worse mm-hmm. yeah it's some um, uh right there's a real uh dramatic focus on the movie where he's where he's confronted with with a some knowledge that he possesses and he he feels the presence of this knowledge he goes and sa- he goes and tells a character that like this knowledge is changing me and the co- and the person responds with like no it's killing you mm-hmm. and that is like that is such a fascinating concept that like it's um, it brings to mind how the Aronofsky is kind of looking in in number terms, in science terms, in practical terms. I guess kind of a concept that um, uh, that um, the Jewish faith has and other faiths have like explored in the idea that like there is some knowledge that you must not possess. Right, and Aronofsky um, is Jewish and comes from a Jewish background. Although his, you know, he's more culturally Jewish. He's not a traditional religious person. Although he has, as we'll see in more films, uh, very much a sense of spirituality. But one of the concepts uh, that that is used here is that not only this idea that he might be able to find the the name of God, but that you should not say the name of God. It's something that uh, if you sometimes see religious Jews uh, writing, uh, they'll write G-D instead of G-O-D, so as not to actually uh, invoke the name itself. And the Hebrew letters uh, for God are actually not the spelled out the phonetic lettering but an abbreviation so again as to not write god's name on a piece of paper that might be thrown away so this this, this is an aspect uh, of jewish tradition but then because we're dealing with kind of a, 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 a and and i don't know exactly how accurate the film is about uh mysticism and kabbalah i suspect that you know there have been some uh exaggerations but you you take kind of this idea of the holiness of not just god but the name of god and then you take it to the concept where this uh this sect is going to go to any lengths for Max to help them discover this name so that they will know, and this is where it gets a bit much, the, the secrets of the universe. Hmm. Yeah, the, um, yeah, does that group, they're, uh, right, at a certain point, like, Max Cohen is, like, uh, like brought into the fold of this, like, of this group that mm-hmm. tries to get the name, and, and, and it, this kind of leads me to a question I want to kind of ask you, Brad, is that, like, do you think that that sect was 
do it was like also kind of tampering in a domain that other say Jewish sects would not have approved of in the idea of this kind of particular kind of pursuit? I, I would guess I would guess so. I, I, this is because first of all, we're dealing with uh, uh, Hasidic Jewry, which is a entirely different, uh, you, you know, people who are not Jewish will recognize them by their uh, uh, black outfits and uh, the, 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 their, their curly hair that comes down. But even within the realm of uh, Hasidism, there's all kinds of different sects. So I, I suspect our, our, our folks from Pi are depicting a pretty extreme sect, which might also be uh, somewhat fictionalized. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's that's interesting. It, like, I think you were. I think you made a really cool point uh, when you were saying how other groups, even even the Hasidic community, they have their own. I mean, they're they're trying to get this number because the number will fulfill some religious tenets of theirs, um, and and uh, some uh, unsavory business types want to help Max out because they feel they will, of course, win out in the stock market if his if his theories prove out correct. But Max himself, he looks for the numbers as a kind of truth that's worth pursuit in and of itself. So he's maybe exploring this, sorry, he's exploring this philosophical like, like example that I brought up earlier. The, the number, is the, it's the number. The number is, and uh, the, um, the ultimate pattern, the discovery, is the value for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And and it, it does tie into like how he's lacking in like so many of his other so many other skills like his his complete lack of, of, of socializing except for his um, uh, professor mentor and like his how he ba barely leaves his uh, barely leaves his apartment. Right, and there you know you see ants uh, constantly invading both the computer and, and the apartment, and you see the the claustrophobia of his world that he seeks a solution to. And we're going to get into a little bit of the ending of the movie. So spoiler warning, uh, he comes sure. up with a uh, somewhat unique and disturbing solution to. Yeah. And, and, and this kind of ties into a, like a concern that Aronofsky brings in that I think may tie him in to the work of like, um, uh, director D um, David Cronenberg, mm -hmm. like Cronenberg, especially through his early works, was very concerned with like using um, a type of uh, uh, type of uh, film called a body horror, whereby like the horror comes from how the body is disturbed and altered and changed in in uh, very um, in very strange and uh, unconventional ways. And how this can tie into like subconscious, the subconscious feelings that people may have, you know, through works such as Scanner and Videodrome. Just people just have their, find their bodies just changed to a just alarming degree. Right. But where Cronenberg usually applies very much the fantastic to that, uh, um, Aronofsky uh, depicts it uh, in probably a, I'm not going to say completely realistic, but more realistic way than Cronenberg does. And, and what Max ends up doing is uh, taking a drill to his head to drill a hole in his skull, which is obviously very disturbing. And uh, 
something more disturbing than that is something that is actually a real thing called uh, uh, tray panning. I may have mispronounced that, but uh, like trepanation, it, I guess, some, something like that. But but the theory is, and it's it's been around for a while, is that if you can. Uh, by the way, kids, don't try this at home. If you can drill a hole in your skull, that will allow more blood to flow through through the brain and and ease some of the pressure that one feels. Now, the, this is, of course, ridiculous, but it is that has not stopped the, there from being instances of this in, in actual life. And we see Max uh, engage in this. And then, in his case, as far as the film is concerned, it's, it, it somewhat works because we then, he's for the first time at the end of the film ever actually able to uh, be outside in nature. And you see him uh, appreciating the sky and the leaves. And when uh, the little girl who uh, is his neighbor, and often asks him uh, impossible math questions, which previously he had uh, known the answer for. Now we see that he is, has traded in uh, his genius for peace of mind. Mm. Like, it's... Um, I find it like it may be a very um, uh, mathematically-based, twisted take of a Lovecraftian tale. Love H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was... All uh, the characters in his stories were um, constantly dealing with the idea of trying to comprehend something beyond their understanding, and the result would drive them insane. And Pi looks at this in a um, in an interesting way through kind of a person's growth and development, how it just was led astray. When, it, like, I think one of the first things that's said in the movie is when when uh, Cohen says. When I was a young child, my mother told me not to look at the sun. So when I was six, I did. It caused him to it caused him to go blind for a bit. But then when he came back, it uh, the implication is that his mathematic mathematical prowess, the the thing that made him a genius, got developed. Mm-hmm. What what it comes to mind for me is that maybe in this maybe what he what Aronofsky was trying to show on here is that like. That moment, he got uh, he received some sort of like knowledge that sort of tuned his body in a way to a different frequency, a way where he looks at numbers, a way it looks at he numbers in a uh, in a different sense that the uh, that the way that uh, uh, normal people do, and that's why he's able to do these calculations with uh, without any without any issues. But it leads him to acquire this knowledge that literally might literally might be too big for his own brain. And um, now with regards on that, with regards on that scene though, that you're saying where, where he is takes a drill to his own head. Now, is your impression that that actually quote unquote happens in the story? That's a really good question. And Aronofsky often includes scenes of questionable reality. I think that if you're if you take the rest of the film as something real and not in his head then that too uh i i would take as part of uh, max's actual story yeah 
there's a lot of things that Max comes up with, and 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 that uh, in the course of his um, uh, actions in the movie, and uh, and one thing that I think that like Aronofsky does in a way that Cronenberg does not is his portrayal of a person's mental state and mental alarm is acutely intimate. This uh, for a debut. This is one of the most visceral debuts made. I would even say that. More, more, even more so than Eraserhead. Eraserhead can be like kind of you know repugnant, like and and disturbing. But it's disturbing that we see a little bit from a distance. Like, boy, that really stinks to be happening to this person. Well, well, that's what I really appreciate about this director is that he he he's not the only director who has access to these kind of dark arts of filmmaking with with the ability to to disturb and to create scenes of horror and revulsion it, it's something that's out there but in in Darinovsky's case it's always to a purpose it's always to a larger theme yes i mean and you're able to just see over as as a, even as a debut he's kind of does some masterful work like as you had described using like multiple different kind of film techniques, stuff like superposition, a fast motion, slow motion, um, uh, like the the use of music, the incredibly an incredible shaky cam when he uh, succumbs to those the, these headaches that have been plaguing him, and and when he is when he's at his like most at his most like alone, the they put a harness on his lower body to have the world itself careen, be, uh, careen behind him. And right, and you're talking about the actor, of course. Uh, yes. th- th- this is something called the Snorri Cam. Snorri Cam. Which, uh, w- which Aronofsky and his team developed to create a, uh, the, a subjective point of view visually. And he uses it uh, also in his next film, but he started it here in Pi, and uh, it's it, 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 it's a pretty unique effect. And yes, the closest I could say that that had an antecedent to it was is, is another amazing film, uh, John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which it was not exactly the same. But the cinematographer, the great James Wong Howe, like had um, had the backgrounds behind a person's face prominently in the foreground, continually careening just to show. The un the unbalanced state of mind that uh, as a person was going through a crisis. Right. Uh, it's a uh, crisis a little further along the main characters of Second's life at that point. Uh, but I in both cases, it's really success. I think they were both very successful in bringing us into this person's world to catch his fascinations, his frustrations, his desires. Um, uh, the ways he, the ways he's, uh, he personally falls short, and to like to what to me I think was the sense of relief. That was a sense of relief that I felt at the end, but uh, uh, where he is not his his mathematics have been lost, but he has a smile on his face as he's able to appreciate nature kind of for its own sake, not thinking that there's some sort of hidden pattern that's the quote-unquote real thing right that the that the that the natural world around him but but at the end i i want to just emphasize a tiny moment at the end where the patterns of the leaves as it flows through the light they form certain like kind of shapes at certain times so to me i had that thought uh, i loved their little tiny tiny sinister undercurrent that maybe his uh maybe his idea of finding patterns is not all completely gone i mean 
What did you think about the ending? Was it, did it a relief for you? Uh, definitely. And because we don't see nature throughout the rest of the movie, you're constantly being drawn further and further in into Max's head. And subjectivity uh, seems to be a big part of what Aronofsky is going for, is seeing the world through these characters' eyes. And... Max is in such uh, such a bad place, uh, you know, as far as how his obsessions with numbers and orders uh, affects his life. That when you see, when when he is relieved, visually the film relieves the audience. Yes. Unfortunately for his characters, relief were uh, proved to be in quite short supply on his next film, um, uh, 2000's uh, Requiem for a Dream, um, a film that features like the story of, of uh, four characters, um, uh, Harry Goldfarb um, and um, uh, Tyrone C. Love, who are partners in um, uh, both partaking and dealing in drugs, who are trying to go and get a... Um, uh, uh, aim, aim at a big score. Uh, Marion Silver, who is the who is Harry's girlfriend, uh, who um, uh, through both like uh, both like the support for Harry and her own um, drug needs, like are, um, has a partnership. And with um, and the fourth character is um, uh, Harry's uh, mother Sarah, who is um, uh, living uh, alone in a um, in an apartment. And is being captivated by this uh, motivational infomercial, which uh, promise, which uh, uh, gives her all gives all these promises about how your life can be improved and you could lose weight and feel so much better. And then uh, one of the driving forces in her life is when she gets the call saying that she's she's won a contest and she has to go and and um, and uh, show make an appearance. And so she wants to go and present herself at the best at her best. And so. In her course to try to pursue that, she engages in another particular look at addiction, which is this story's stock theme and main purpose is to show just the kind of level of deaths that addiction can take you. Right. And, you know, we, we've just, we discussed uh, during the Danny Boyle uh, show about uh, in train spotting, kind of how I don't generally love movies about drug addictions. I, that that one I didn't like quite as much as other people had. Also, movies like uh, Panic and Needle Park and Sid and Nancy are films th- that that left me cold. So I I kind of you know have this general thing about about addiction movies. But you know, as I found with any film discussion, the more films you see the more exceptions you have to make because this film is made at such a high level of intensity and identification that 
for me, it, it becomes really the only addiction movie necessary. You can uh, throw out the rest because uh, he, he's, he's, he's taken it to the next level. He's, he's looking at it not just in terms of one particular drug, but of many. And throughout through these four characters showing the, uh, the trials, the pain, and the, the tragic results of addiction in a way that is, 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 so, is so intense, but also so engaging because we like these characters. These are characters who are not, who, you know, it, the title, you know, says it, there, there was a Requiem for a Dream. There was a dream. They didn't necessarily set out to have their lives ruined by addictions. They had things that they hoped for, but those will all be set aside now because of, of, of what addiction could do. Yeah, this movie is one of the top three films for me, one of the greatest films of all time that I will never see again <laughs> um, because it is so effective at bringing across this kind of message. Now, now it leads to a question upon does drug, I mean, to make an anti-drug movie is the, uh, like pointing out drugs are bad, a worthwhile message. And Requiem, I think succeeds at this in a number of ways because it's one thing to say that drugs are bad. It's another to lecture as to yourself as an observer about how drugs are bad, but it's another to get people to feel the effects of what makes drugs so horrifying or drug or drug addiction so horrifying to encounter. The effect that like he is so masterful, Aronofsky is in this film to make a two hour long shot of like a vice continually constricting and getting closer and closer and limiting people's like viewpoints and their options more and more. You feel like the net is closing in on you like throughout this. Film. Right. He's upped his game from pie because now he has a budget. Now he has uh, amazing actors to work with, particularly Ellen Burstyn who hasn't had uh, a great role since the 70s un until this film. And then in this film gives what, what I think is her career best of what I've seen from her. A, um, you know, she, she starts out uh, the film as kind of the you know, stereotypical Jewish mother yes. who is I interested in, in what we think of as uh, little old ladies' interests of, uh, yeah. you know, will their son get married and, and, and what's on TV. And, and, and then she uh, gets the impression that she has the opportunity to be on TV as well. Now, she already has an addiction, which is, is television itself. That's a great point. Yes. And uh, she realizes that she can't fit into her uh, treasured red dress, which she wore in her youth. And so, you know, she has to deal with her food addiction. And through that uh, situation, she ends up seeing a doctor who prescribes diet pills. He's kind of a shady doctor. So she ends up with uh, some upper uppers and downers and then, uh, then becomes a the addiction becomes to these 
legal uh, pres- prescription drugs, which we don't often hear about. You know, the 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 other uh, um, folks in the film are dealing with heroin addiction, who which which of course is much more. Uh, familiar territory uh, on film, but again, never quite seen like this. Yes, it's um, right. This film has some value in that, like it looks across, uh, and and a lot of that comes from the Sarah Goldfarb character. It lo- shows that addiction is not just some uh, providence that young people do as some sort of like wild pursuit. It's also something that like people of any age can go and succumb to. And for and for like a, a variety of reasons, um, this film also does a, has a moment through and through like Darinowski's filmmaking technique, which shows where the where the need for these drugs just comes from. It's not just like in the hyper sped up party sequences where everyone's having a grand time, but there's an uh, an amazing, incredible sequence. Maybe something. Where the best that uh, Ellen Burstyn has ever done as a performance, where she is um, with her son in her apartment, and she goes and has a confessional, uh, a confessional moment, and says, "You know, look, I'm I'm old. I don't have much of a future, and this is all this is all that I have left. I'm very lonely, and there's I I don't know I don't know what goes next. This is maybe this." Um, Appearance, maybe just one the one thing to just show that, you know, I'm mattering, and it's it's this really really um, uh, dark and 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 sad like uh, depiction delivered with just ultimate conviction from uh, from from Burston. In fact, there's a fun little detail upon it that if you actually look at that scene, like the camera kind of drifts a little off off center. And Aronofsky was not did not mean it to be originally done that way, but he went to uh, he went to his cinemat he went to his cinematographer and then and then and then and then asked him. Um, uh, it was M- Matthew uh, Libatique, uh, by the way, was a, cine- a cinematographer to this and many other Aronofsky films, and said, "Well, why did why did it happen?" And it turns out Libatique was actually so moved by it that he was crying himself and did not want to fog up the did not want to fog up the lens, so he like like moved away from the camera at that moment right so this is a real roller coaster you you you've got burst and uh putting in this incredible emotional performance while at the same time you've got the the camera work being very frantic and and and, and the editing is amazing from one one person's story to the other and then showing them side by side. So when you switch from uh, Ellen Burstyn to Jared Leto to Marlon Wayans to Jennifer Connelly, when they're not in scenes together and they're on their separate uh, journeys to hell, you see these journeys compared by the editing. That's right. This is right. This this movie to me does like you're so right. It's a clinic on on editing on kind of I would say both on the macro and micro level um, uh, on the micro level like there are shots which are which consist of like almost hundreds of cuts within the span of a minute but 
they make sense. They make sense, and they put you in the feeling of either a drug high or a terrible low. They had a nickname for this. Uh, they called them uh, hip hop montages. <laughs> okay. And and, the, and, the, and in the case of the the heroin heroin users, you see in very quick succession uh, the setup of the needle and the use of the drug, and then uh, uh, the uh, diet pills are shot in the exact same way with the hip-hop montages so that you, you um, unconsciously are now associating these different forms of addiction with each other. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, to get back to editing a little bit, the macro editing is what you, what, how you describe in the sense that you have a scene with, uh, you have a scene with Sarah Goldfarb that, all, that then uh, that can cut to a scene with Harry that can, uh, Harry Goldfarb that can cut to a scene to Marion and so on, and it jumps across in a way that does service to all of their stories. Does not leave any of them like does not leave any of them left out, and gives them all these sense of undue attention of due attention without sacrificing the on the slow yet ever ongoing momentum of of the addiction closing in on them. And right. it's not just the editing; it's the score. I would say that of all Aronofsky's films, uh, this is the one where the score takes uh, the most center stage. And it, you know, again, the, the Requiem of the title is meant to, you know, evoke a musical, uh, something that is musical. And where it starts out somewhat subtly, by the end, almost like the end of Goodfellas, as these uh, montages get more and more intense, the score builds also in intensity towards the end of the film. Yes, to be sure. And, and special credit should also be given out to the sound design. As mm -hmm. fast as the hip-hop montages go for like the visual imagery that's coming in uh, into, our, uh, into our eyes from the screen, like the sound is just as complex. Like, uh, like just uh, the like the the hissing, the bubbling of uh, the bubbling of the heroin in the spoon, the, the 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 slight plunk sound of the plunger, and as the seasons change, because there's uh, four seasons, and in an innovation that I've never seen before, the it isn't a title card. The title card does not appear, putting the list, putting the name of the season. It descends yes. from the top <laughs> and and collides with a gigantic thunk. Like this forty-ton, like weight of judgment, kind of like maybe the ultimate, like Law and Order theme of like of of something being judged happening to the happening to the characters, and feels like and feels like in a in a gut-like level, like the door slamming shut in the opening sequ in some in the opening segment of Leatherface's appearance in, <laughs> in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Every season has a set of finality to it of like of of maybe like a limb of a year being cut off on that, and I want to get into a little bit more to the the hip hop montages because, like I was when I when I first saw it I had only seen pies and anti seed those montages had happened a little bit earlier when when Max Cohen in in Pie takes these pills mm -hmm. it's done in this incredibly fast sequence that always has the same pattern like um uh, like uh. Uh, like pocket, palm, hand, mouth, uh, close-up of eye, back to scene. Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's a sequence, 
and the sequence does not the sequence does not change. This this particular sequence happens the, every time people take drugs. It's the like like um uh, close uh, like a close up of the uh, of the drug kit. Cut really quickly to a, cl- a cut of the drugs on a spoon. Cut to like the um uh, the drugs being heated up. Cut to the needle touching it. Cut to like the um um the vein getting exposed. Cut to the plunger. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. All in a span of maybe under two seconds. And they keep doing this. But there's that climactic scene with Sarah where Sarah does this confession about how 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 lonely and awful she feels on in, in her station now in, in life. It cuts to a moment when um, her son is traveling in a cab and he's obviously horribly upset by like how bad his mother feels. And then it does that exact hip-hop montage. And it cuts to him, and he looks like a completely disaffected youth that is ready for <laughs> being shot for a, like a Calvin Klein ad or something. Right, right. At that yeah. moment, I think that moment, I, pu- I think this movie puts an extra detail upon the drug thing. That the, the, the drugs, and in fact, the drug taking is the ritual to get people out, to get people out through the day. The ritual for people to go and get these, these painful things for themselves at, ar- at, like, at arm's length, which is, of course, ironic in Jared Leto's case. Right, and it also visually uh, shows, uh, again, with subjectivity, how one imagines being so disassociated from life might feel like. You know, we the uh, again the Snorri Cam uh, returns uh, for almost all the characters, and this this disassociation uh, forces you to view uh, to view through uh, through your own senses uh, as much a, a, of a filmic uh, analogy of what one imagines an addict. Uh, might have to might have to go through and and it's 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 just done so effectively right and and it also does a it also does kind of like to a truthful look at addiction what uh rashomon did as a truthful look at the truth in the sense that like the different addictions are presented directed in different ways like um harry and harry and um uh uh his um and his partner tyrone's like their, their addictions are done as like this kind of almost like a kind of very dark like heist caper movie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like Marion's addiction is treated as kind of she seems unlike those two. She's a comes from a more well off family, and and her stuff is given a more kind of fairy tale like quality. Like like she's there's a scene where she's like on a pier. Which like evokes actually a, a similar Jennifer Connelly she, uh, incident in, when she, in Dark City, ah, yeah. and <laughs> and one of the things she does to try and get drugs is treated as like a uh, d- like a kind of a dark descent into a kind of Alice in Wonderland like nightmare, and so it's kind of like let's it's shown in a in a in a different in a tone that might be equally dark. But of a different reg, of a different chord, or a different of a different note, and of course, and Sarah, what, due to taking uh, uh, Ellen Burson's character, due to taking like these these uppers, her viewpoint becomes appropriately manic. Things are way more scattershot, way more like um, uh, um, wild and coming from every direction. Right, which leads to you know one of the centerpieces of the film, and 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 uh, this pretty amazing sequence where. Her apartment uh, starts to attack her. 
the yeah. uh, the refrigerator has teeth. The television show she's watching, and and again we're we're, we're in her head because uh, apparently this one show that was uh, created this 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 terrible. Uh, re- reality. Uh, I'm not sure they're sell- selling some kind of uh, juice, and yes. and, and, it, and it's it's a miracle it, cure for uh, what uh, ails you. Right, yeah. right. Uh, an in, uh, an infomercial, uh, ironically enough, on drugs. Uh, but we see this infomercial invade her own home. And we even see, and this is again a credit to Ellen Burstyn's performance. You see. Uh, the damaged, disheveled, uh, addicted Sarah uh, interacting with, uh, again, the actress playing uh, an idealized, younger-looking version of herself who's uh, supposed to be on this uh, on this show. Yeah, it's like, right, it's kind of showing that in her particular um, uh, dar- downward spiral journey, like, she's getting literally outside of herself. And losing out, and like lo- losing her own identity, other characters may lose parts of themselves, or like, or parts of their own psychology. But, but Sarah, uh, but Sarah's journey is ultimately the most tragic because at the end, you look at her and you just wonder, you know, you wonder what's left. Right. Although I, I'm not sure that the same can't be said for our other characters as well, and we we get to this very dark ending where every character winds up in the fetal position. And uh, again, interesting for this kind of film, nobody dies. That would be kind of a a more standard way in an added film is to have one or more characters die. They, they, they don't, they don't die, but we, we, we see them all in various stages of of damage that are are so intense and so tragic that they may as well be dead well yeah that's an interesting point i mean like i know when i was looking at it i was not necessarily wishing for like i was not wishing for like like anyone's demise in the sense to just get their pain to go away which would like even though they're put into some really really dark they're going to go to some really, really dark places, and um, but even with even with Sarah's, uh, there's it's not that there's a way of hope, but it's just a way where like where there, she should have some sort of right to survive through mm-hmm. uh, through uh, like like through her ordeal. Right. Know? I mean the, the the fact that the characters survive might indicate. Uh, a second chance, but we we are not shown this. What we are shown is basically the film ends uh, very effectively in a, in a way where you know you leave the film with your jaw dropped and yeah. uh, and what you're seeing. But but the film film ends with the characters at their lowest points. Yeah, I mean it's uh yeah they're at they're all and they're all kind of like you said they're all assumed the fetal position in the end. Like it's. It's kind of um, it it first both harkens to like a biological kind of thing about like how you just end up just reverting like every part of like humanity just gets like the the things you believe about society and to believe about yourself and your own development they all just kind of wither away and it also harkens to that um, line at the end of um, uh, Kubrick's um, Barry Lyndon where they say you know rich or poor. 
happy or angry, uh, they are all equal now. And I and I mean, it just leads me to a question that like, like, do you think that in, in that way or maybe in any other way that the movie might be end up a little too reductive in the sense that like dr- that using drugs will always get you to the same place? This is not a movie with a great and original plot. And if you just did a, uh, a summary of the story, uh, it, it's, not, it's not an engaging one to me, just the story itself. What happens is the execution is so powerful that it overcomes what I agree could be a very reductive story. As like as as e- Roger Ebert so aptly put it, like yeah, the movies are not about what they're about. They are movies are about how they are about what they are about. Um, in Requiem, I'm like I am in uh, just amazement at just the way like as how you describe it, just the way Aronofsky is so successful at every level of depicting this story. And maybe even if the message is reductive, which, uh, which I, I have to think of the possibility that there, that there is, that there is the case because Look, the message is don't do drugs. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it, or, 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 you know, and watch out for your other addictions as well. Yeah. It, it, it's the stuff of after school specials right. okay. in the hands of less talented people, but in the hands of somebody who is incredibly talented a movie like this can be the result. Right. It's not right. Ultimately, I don't think it's the, I don't say necessarily it would be the greatest movie, but it is a perfect movie to me. It, when I say perfect, I mean every element of the film, every directorial choice, every point of framing, every use of editing, all the uses, all the performance, and the momentum of the story all combined to give that message. And I Kind of, I, I think, or at least suspect that with some little exceptions, such as like, such as the exploration of the need to take drugs, it is kind of have this after-school special type message that drugs can be get you in real trouble. I just the way it's done is so phenomenally well done that I could be addic- I could, I could be compelled to be watching this, uh, to watching this kind of technique, like. If it wasn't on such a subject that is, to me, viscerally successful, ultimately, that proves to me the movie's undying. The movie cuts its own throat in terms of replay value for me because it is so effective at giving that level of oppression, claustrophobia, and ultimate despair. That I'm like, okay, I got it, Aronofsky, I got it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, so from so from this level, and it's really interesting that you bring up the fetal position because they. They get back to a point at the beginning, and this whole idea of like cir- uh, of circular movement from from one from one kind of phase from one phase of existence to another is now given like this a universe level exploration. I mean, where whereas like um, Requiem for a Dream was a quantum leap in terms of uh, uh, in terms of Aronofsky's technique, he moves the scope to literally astronomical levels with his next film, uh, The Fountain, in, in 2006.
fountain concerns itself with three different stories or are they but they feature um uh but uh in but they are ostensibly set like about 500 years apart like there's there's a story about a conquistador who is sent off by the queen of spain to uh go and find the um mystical lost tree of life somewhere in the mayan jungles there's another story uh, where um, uh, about a man whose wife is succumbing to um, a, a terminal illness. Who he is a uh, he is a surgeon and a scientist, and he's feverishly working. Uh, pun not intended, a fee- but he's working on uh, trying for a cure. Um, and it's a look at a man moving across the universe. To a uh, to a nebula in the constellation of Orion, with a with um uh, in a in a s- bubble like environment where it has a little bit of a uh, of um the ground and a large tree, to which he has this level of loyalty and uses and both like consumes and uh, consumes stuff from the tree and uses it to like further like mark himself. And the movie moves across these, di- these different, uh, these different environments, uh, of like these, uh, mostly involving these t- two two characters who are both played by um, Hugh Jackman and uh, Rachel Weisz in these three different eras, and this just gives a look of what does it mean of life and death questions across space. And across time. It's interesting the reaction uh, to this film when it came out. It, it not only did not make a lot of money, but it was uh, very. Uh, critics, uh, there were very mixed reactions from, from critics. And it's one of those movies that, you know, may take more than one viewing to, to really get into because. It's it, it's three timelines do create the possibilities for some confusion and trying to work out what's what's going on. So I think that might be a good place to start is to kind of be like, well, what what do these three timelines mean? And, and the key to that is uh, that the Rachel uh, Weiss character is uh, uh, you know as she's uh, dying of cancer. Is writing a book, uh, and which this is, is the, this is a present day. We're the, right, we're talking uh, in the present day. We might, you know, refer to the you know them them as uh, you know they're all, all three Hugh Jackman characters are Tom. Maybe the first is Conquistador Tom from Tomas. the Tomas, yes, from the uh, uh, Mayan Empire and uh, or the, from the Spanish Empire who is uh, who are invading uh, Mayan territories. Right. And then the modern day uh, Doctor Tom, and then the future. Uh, well, I don't want to call him uh, Major Tom, even though his character <laughs> does have association with the David Bowie song. Yes, but 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 uh, he's a space back, oddity, though. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But back to um, to Izzy's character, the the Rachel Weisz character. She is is writing this book called The Fountain, and. What we see in the past in of uh, the conquistador Tom is 
what is in the book. So, so everything in that part of the story is from her point of view. Now, the second part of the story, uh, m- uh, modern day, uh, is what we see as, as re- you know, objective reality of the film. And then the more interesting thing is what's going on in the future with the um, with the, the 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 spaceman Tom, who is in this astronaut with the tree with the tree, because uh, she has left her book unfinished. She knows uh, that she is going to die, and she wants her husband to write the last chapter. So then it it becomes a question of is the future vision uh, the last chapter that, uh, that, that Tom writes for the book or is, the, is it part of the reality of the film itself which brings out some uh, science fiction elements and asks the central question of the film, how do we approach death? Yes, um, uh, right, that that central that question you say about the future uh, the quote-unquote future tom traveling out through space is it like the present day thomas's conception or is or is like that or is that happening in the actual course of the story for it to happen in the course of the story he would have to succeed because he he wants to save his wife from death and and and, but but his obsession again we're back to obsessions goes beyond that he believes that death is an evil, that death is an enemy that needs to be conquered. He says at one point, it's like any other disease. We have to find a cure. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what, what the film is looking at. Now, if we take uh, Spaceman Tom literally, as that's, what ha- that's what's happening, then we would, uh, and, and we do get some hints, because at, at one point in the movie, uh, they're experimenting on a monkey, and they do uh, reach the conclusion, well, we've been able to remove his cancer, the, the monkey's cancer, which uh, yes. for the experiments. So we then imagine, could what if Tom has, in fact, defeated death, made man, for all practical purposes, immortal and 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 that's the science fiction element that allows us to possibly look at the the future portion of the film uh that way or we can go the other way and say that this is a subjective uh viewpoint of the last chapter of of the book yes it is um that exploration that happens in the in the future sense of um of Tommy is to me science fiction kind of like the best like one of the best senses which is that it uses the principles of science to just go and like look at the human condition like it's not all just done to like to just show how oh my gosh how machines work nicely or how or how or oh, this is what space might be like so much as to say like the fact of exploration of space exploration of space travel and so and so on is a way of just uh, us for going out and having a look for ourselves. And it's shown in that kind of way. If there's no... Uh, Thomas's travels in the future are not explained in a level of, like, showing the physics or the thermodynamics of what's going on. But it's... But it does lead from that... Lead from what you described as. It's 
a practical example of what happens when a person who has conquered in some ways the aging process what would the what what is his next mission to do like over the course of like and and the film is and i find the film phenomenally rich for being able to give people that kind of a question to go and like say um, in, in a way, in a way that the a recent science fiction film uh, Arrival uh, also explores the idea, like, is our memories and our dreams and our wishes not as structured as necessarily that we may think, and how much of it, and how much of this tie, and how much of this is tied in to just where we're standing, you know, from the past or the present. In this way, it kind of. Um, the film touches on like some notions done by like the um, a psychologist uh, Carl Carl Jung, which is the idea of like archetypes. The idea that they, they are, there are these things, these elements that are in the world that are floating in the world and in fact the the universe that are part of like our collective say unconscious, and we just you know we just tap into them, and. Like and the film lets us like look at this kind of like thoughts as, as whether a dream or a wish becomes a memory becomes a story, and that's something that I personally find phenomenally cool about it. It, it is cool. It, it's also similar to two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, in that it doesn't answer all questions. It leaves itself open to possibilities, to interpretation. And, and, and it very much trusts the audience. And that's something um, that is special about a film that has so many ideas about its subject, is so skillfully rendered with uh, special effects that, for the most part, are not CGI, uh, but, but are practical, and, uh, and, and just, just harkens back to kind of a... Uh, uh, the kind of filmmaking that, that that's uh, that's pretty rare. One thing I, I, I think that's interesting to kind of look at as we're um, uh, you know taking the three timelines and and trying to figure them out is the place that the tree has in all of them, because or at least in two of them because uh, the secret to immortality uh, according to the both the primitive. Uh, conquistador passage and uh the futuristic passage is the biblical tree of life Mm -hmm. uh from from genesis which could also be translated as the fountain of youth oh okay so oh so the a tree uh in biblical phrasing can also be a fountain no 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 it's not uh, i'm i'm just saying that the effect is the same The, the why is the film named the fountain and because there actually isn't an ac- a fountain, it's uh, there <laughs> is a fountain pen though. There is a fountain pen, yes. <laughs> which, 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 in a quick detail, I want to mm-hmm. note, like has an, an an intricate nib that kind of looks like what might be a Mayan arrowhead. Ah, and <laughs> and like, and is a really cute way to me of like looking that there's it's it's used in a kind of violent manner in during the movie. To make to make the mark, maybe in a similar way that an arrowhead might, mm-hmm. you know. But but uh, but that's right. There is no actual fountain in the in a, in the film title. Right. But there, there there is a there is a tree a tree of life, and 
the story of the book of the uh, of Spanish soldier who is uh, doing the uh, bidding of, uh, of of Queen Isabella to uh, conquer the new world of, of, of the Mayans and find this secret to immortality. Um, and, and this part of the film shows kind of a this kind of primitive idea of what uh, of what a doctor might do later on in history or an explore you know a space explorer might do even later in history but this primitive idea is that if he can just drink from the tree of life then he could find immortality but if immortality just means remaining the tree has has a surprise in store because in a in a really eerie and an effective scene uh after the conquistador uh tomas uh drinks from the tree he begins to sprout uh plants and growth uh and vegetation yeah and so his goal for immortality is is in some way achieved because he continues to be life but he's not the same life yes and that ties into um uh, uh, um, um, something that that the present day izzy says when he she's trying to console thomas by uh, tom by saying how she's learned to accept death she talks about they had taken a trip earlier to the to the central uh, to um uh, south uh, south america and um, their guide had talked about how their father, when his her his father was buried, they planted a they planted a seed, and the seed caused like to absorb his body and then become part of the world and will always be a part of the world. And this seed leads to a second tree. Yes, because uh, uh, Doctor uh, Tom is not able to save his wife. Uh, she 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 does pass, but when she is buried, he then takes the seed and buries it onto her grave, of which a tree would grow that then represents his wife. That's right, and and it's and it's one of the questions that at that does the future Tom is traveling with that very tree, the tree right, that's it, grown from. From where his wife's body had lain. Because the first time I thought, I assumed that tree was the tree of life from the the story of the past. But if you look at it again, it could just as easily be the tree that was on the grave. Yes. And in, so in a way, like you can say that a tree makes an appearance in all three timelines, albeit it is a very baby tree in the present day one. Right. And the third one then represents Izzy and... In, in in the spaceship, uh, again depicted in a way that I have not seen a spaceship depicted in in previous films. Aronofsky said he was tired of spaceships looking like trucks. Yeah, and um, and you see that uh, at at this point, uh, in in each period, uh, Hugh Jackman has a different look. Uh, he's uh, bearded uh, in in the in the past, and he. Yeah looks kind of like what we think of Hugh Jackman looking like in the present. And then he's uh, uh, completely bald and kind of a uh, meditative uh, yogi stance uh, in the third. But he still, 
has visions uh, of his wife who he associates with the tree and still seems to think he can save, still seems to think even at this level of um, uh, far in the future, centuries into the future, that if the tree is the spirit of of his wife and they are they are going to to a, a nebula that they had uh, discussed uh, uh, called the uh, Shibalba, which is actually the uh, translated as uh, uh, the underworld hmm. in uh, Mayan mythology, but here is viewed as uh, a pot- you know potential savior. You know, like <laughs> I. This the uh, this is kind of an interesting um, uh, in that when you when you say it brings up the underworld, this kind of like shows one of the what I think is one of the greatness of the movie, one of the greatest points this movie is able to do, because when you're talking about the underworld, why would the Mayans think the underworld is way up there? <laughs> it's not really under anything except possibly Orion's belt. <laughs> well, the uh, I, I don't think the Mayans viewed uh, Jabalba as a, 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 a as a nebula. I think they were viewing it as, in, in their form form of mythology as the underworld and then it's it's the modern characters who apply the term to uh, Astronomy, right? Yeah. Well, well, right. No, I mean the under underworld being like the, the perhaps that the Mayans um, uh, Mayans figure the passage of the dead is not underworld. Mm-hmm. That's just how how maybe more a more Western religions describe such. Right. Um, but I like that they did it because that from that little like kind of like incongruity incong- um, is shows how this movie is is breathtaking to me and how it alters with perspective. Like I really respond. I don't know if it's my math, if my mathematics interest, but I really do respond to um, the Max Cohen character in Pi and the idea of like looking over at patterns in nature. But I also respond uh, uh, to film in its ability to like alter our own film. It also changes people without having to kill them. Unlike, Max Cohen's kind of potential threat, like it's able to alter our own viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways it does it is by letting us like think, letting us move outside of our own comfort zone, letting us like look and entertain or wonder about new perspectives. And, and the fountain does this constantly. There are rhymes and echoes and patterns and, and, and repeated patterns that bounce in across all three eras, sometimes, multi, sometimes multiple references at once. And, and like in terms on perspective, there's a wonderful sequence that happens in each timeline, which we see at first from upside down. Mm-hmm. We are not looking, we're not trying to make sense of what's going on, and then as, as something is racing towards us on screen, and then as it passes us, the camera does a flip, and then we, we reorient ourselves. And I think that's kind of part of the movie's greatest aim and its greatest success is how it helps us reorient things from what we're looking at. It, it teaches us how to watch it in, in one of the very first sequences because after an introduction uh, uh, set in the past, we uh, move to the present and we see from uh, Izzy's point of view uh, Tom uh, sitting at his desk 
and at first she looks at uh, Future Tom. Uh, yes. He's sitting at his desk, uh, bald, looking like uh, the man in the spaceship. Yeah, and then uh, and then as we uh, edit back and forth from her, her looking at her to looking at, at at Hugh Jackman, you know, we realize that he is then the the Hugh Jackman that we know from the present day story, and so you know we've a established kind of a connection between the three characters and B are showing that a lot is dependent upon whose point of view we're looking at it uh, from, especially when, we, you know, we consider uh, Izzy who has uh, created the, uh, the time of the past. Yes, that's uh, yes. That's, that's so true. And I think in that particular sequence, that may be the most, um, that may be um, uh, the next that might be the nexus upon which the whole movie lies is, is just and i think it's very very touching upon what is going on and because what's what's happening is is that izzy wants to go on a walk for the first snow and but um tom is busy on these experiments that he's he's desperately trying to go uh, to find a cure for his for his his wife's ailment and he's so busy that he doesn't that he can't he doesn't join her but at the end when he finally comes to a kind of a realization upon what it means for her life and its passing and his own life and what he needs to do he you see that sequence and he changes his mind and he does join her as she leaves she's leaving on the hallway but the when she opens it it's a blinding white light mm. and at that moment, I was like, "Oh wait a minute! I got the. Uh, you, I feel we were getting the impression that it's not, that it's not really that blinding. It's she's passing through to another area. But when you do, but then when he does decide to pursue her and 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 join her on this walk, when they're walking, you do see a shot of them walking, and that walking is the actual scene at the farm in the farm mm -hmm. area where she is later." in the movie to find to get buried you know one of the reasons this film works so well is because it's not just dealing with uh the phil philosophical issues but it's an incredibly effective love story yes. which you know it, it, there's so many love stories in films and and so many of them uh, can become cliche this one is not this one for me was very touching. There was real chemistry between the two actors. Uh, at no point uh, did I not believe the connection between the two of them, and I, I think the acting performances from both actors were great. Yeah, abs absolutely. I, I mean, especially Jackman. He is. You feel so much for their relationship through the depths that Jackman is able to go to show his despair and his desperation. And his and his drive and his the way he's able to go and the way he has this just total level of trying of caring that his that his wife is okay, um, like he does a phenomenal job at it and 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 you and you just really feel and wish the most for their like the most for their success and or or as much success as they could possibly go and achieve through any of their through any of their timelines. 
if there's if there's something where I would go and say it that do, it doesn't quite reach to that level is not Rachel Weiss's performance as Izzy. It's that her characterization is is um, not full, not as robu- not full, that robust. She kind of does to me like comes across a little like um, her acceptance of her fate is uh, is a, a little more resolute than I guess. I would have I would have wanted to see or I mean it seems more I not that I would have wanted to see but it's more idealized I think she she takes that like well in a such an uncompromising level that that I would have liked to see more shadings of someone being put in that like kind of a dire situation right uh, but it's it, it's meant to contrast the complete opposition of uh, uh, of Hugh Jackman's character to viewing death as an evil, as a complete enemy that must be fought uh, and overcome at all costs. So we we can imagine she went through uh, an illness process before the, you know, that we don't see on film. Yeah. And, you know, because she's an end stage uh, in what we see in the film. And there, there is certainly... When somebody is diagnosed and and there's a period when there's hope and and she we don't see that period for Izzy we see her at the last stage of grief yeah. at at acceptance, which is uh, a place that Tom never reaches. Yeah, yeah, and and ultimately, I mean, if you probably is a fair interpretation to say. Maybe the stuff is kind of mostly from Tom's perspective, and and one of the ways that like the conquistador Thomas looks at the conquistador, um, uh, sorry, looks at uh, Queen Isabella, it's meant to kind of be an idealized version of what Tom sees in what Tom sees in right. Izzy. But again, it, it's Tom's perspective from Izzy's perspective because the right. conquistador story is what is written by Izzy. So she's right. she's looking, she's analyzing her husband yeah. through this story. Yeah. So we're not just seeing uh, what you know Tom's characterization. We're seeing her version of Tom. Yes, that's you know that's a great point because like in in, in I think you can find a, some pretty interesting psychological richness to come in from the the two different sides from the quote unquote past and the quote unquote future. The past is Izzy's view, mm-hmm. and the future is Tom's. The future is Tom's view. You look at how you look at how like how brightly lit the past is with these just gigantic golden amber bathed the uh, the light bathed in and it's also more it's also more pungent with when they the the when the tree of life is actually discovered with these lush greens just incredible incredibly sharp like blade of fire of uh you know it's so much more elemental i find but then and and then you look at how sterile tom's future self is it's kind of interesting how like in multiple cases like he's tom future tom touches like these kind of hair like structures on the surface of the tree that seem to be attracted to his touch like leading to this idea that maybe it is izzy in another kind of form well that that i think is exactly right and is made vivid by a, a scene where where they're in bed together 
and you see uh, a close-up uh, from his point of view of the back of her neck and the uh, the hairs uh, on, on her head that echo visually the hairs on the tree. Yes. So that that is an explicit connection between Izzy and the tree. Yes, but it, I think it's also really interesting how how when since the idea of touching her hair is such an intimate moment that he mm-hmm. cares about and he responds to even in his future self that he himself is hairless. Oh, that's interesting. You yes. know, mm-hmm. how much like it's I don't know, maybe one way of looking at it is a way of saying his scientific pursuit is kind of like quote unquote missing the point in the same way Max's point from Pi is missing the point how his search for science is leading himself sterile and not open to the kind of physical sensations that he he may be denying that even as a part of himself to like not uh, like something that he doesn't feel is worthy of him having that Izzy that Izzy possesses even in her potential you know tree like state and also look at it in the way that like he sustains himself by feeding off of Izzy potentially right if if you want to believe that her herself or consciousness or what have you or persona has manifested itself in the tree or at least that future Tom thinks it does. Mm-hmm. He periodically during the when we see these future moments, he's cutting off the bark and he's eating it with a close up of, of his mouth as he ingests it. Mm-hmm. So it's in a way looking at how he's feeding off the memory of Izzy. Maybe that's what the, maybe that's what's trying to say. And 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 it goes further than that because he doesn't just use quote-unquote use, uh, but I'm not even using quotes. He's literally using the tree, not just to sustain himself physically, but he also uses it to mark himself. And that's another case of where the film's many, I- the ideas the film does and the way the f- they echoes these ideas throughout the story right. because is an, brilliant. Because another go- symbol is the ring. Yes. Which, uh, which, which, which Tom loses uh, in the present day. And he views that ring as symbolic of their union so much so that uh, having lost the ring after her death, he, he tattoos himself yes. with the ring. And then future Tom uh, takes that tattoo and expands it throughout uh, a great deal of, of his body. Yes. It's like, right. It takes like, Right for and it's kind of like the almost the almost opposite yet complement of the idea of his like of his hairless form. Mm-hmm. He uses his writing to make a mark, uh, make Izzy's mark on himself. The rings not evoke the rings of a tree trunk to show the passage of time. And I think he even makes a statement like saying like you have helped pull me through time. And so this idea that like through writing, through the kind of act of like through the act of drawing and creation on your own self has left its mark, you know? And in a way, like, if you want to go super meta, he, um, uh, Aronofsky's left his mark with his films. His films, like, in however long we have formats, will, sur- will have the potential to survive him and his descendants and his following descendants. And he has said that this is the most personal of his films, and this is the film... That he, it was it was a film with a, a a very involved history. At one point, it was supposed to uh, 
be a big budget epic that starred Brad Pitt and uh, Kate Blanchett. And uh, they built these giant sets, and then the studio completely pulled the plug. So then it had to be re uh, reimagined a- as a more modest film. But you know, I-, I I have to think that we ended up with with the with the better film because you know more resources is not going to uh, not going to trump these kind uh, of rich ideas that the final product conveys. Well. I mean, maybe maybe we'll maybe our opinions will differ as we go further into Aronofsky's filmography. But I feel that Aronofsky is a filmmaker who has proven himself. No matter how much money you throw at him, not one dollar will be wasted. And at this point, in my opinion, right, <laughs> right. That's yes, exactly. And 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 we and we may get we may get to the specific right. films later. <laughs> how, however, like what cannot be denied is. Just how he his achievement in making the fountain such an effective, thoughtful, creative, continually innovative, and remarkable film. After it had been scuttled, had its budget cut pretty effectively in half, and had a four-year delay. Like I mean, we as as we've had the opportunity to talk over, you know, from our uh, from the other podcasts we've been discussing. We've already, we've encountered situations where directors have had their visions curtailed mm-hmm. and like uh, cut off before they even even had a chance to conceive of a work, and the different compromises that they've made and, and where we found things that where they where they've been la- not um, uh, unsuccessful in various ways. But in the fountain, to me, I, I just see an example of a of a, a film. It, you wouldn't if you're watching the film. You would have thought that this is an auteur who had had every penny he was asked, that had all the time in the world, had all the performances that he asked for to be able to get his personal vision on screen. It is pr- almost as uh, as a successful a creative effort in every element to me as *Requiem for a Dream* does, but with the difference that it was a complete scuttled disaster, and he had to take what he could from the original story mm-hmm. and make this work from it. I mean, I think this is one of the greatest examples of making the, the, the tastiest, most fantastic lemonade out of lemons that I think in movie history. For sure. For sure. The results absolutely speak for themselves. Yeah. You go and like use these the interstellar expanses and the and the historical vastness of the fountain. Oh, where on earth does a director go from here? And in Aronofsky's case, he literally goes over the top rope to like make a dramatic change in his um uh, director style and and the scope of his films with uh, 2008's uh, The Wrestler. Um, this is a is such an intimate portrait of an a former wrestling star, uh, Randy the Ram Robinson, uh, played by Mickey Rourke, as it just goes through his um, 
his day-to-day hard scrabble existence like uh living in a trailer like his money and his fame have been long gone and what meager living he does is on these these underground wrestling circuits and it goes and looks through like um a series of uh days and weeks in his life as he tries to put a semblance of his life back together strike up a um a romance with a um a um, stripper uh, named Cassidy, played by Marissa Tomei, and he tries to reconnect with his estranged daughter. He even has a, a chance to go and get work at um, at a local at a local supermarket. And for as as wide and as big as the questions that the fountain has, the uh, wrestler looks at that in uh, like on the most intimate and tiniest details of behavior it just it just harkens back to like something that the fountain was that the fountain was doing at least in um at least in perspective terms about like how the special effects in interstellar the interstellar effects were actually done through not through cgi but through chemical reactions that were then filmed through a microscope through a microscopic photography process and it kind of shows you how like already then he's looking at like saying like at things on like the biggest scale and things at the smallest scale. And I think a director with that perspective is very unique indeed. And here he looks at it on the most intimate but personal human scale. Right. It's a different kind of filmmaking. We've seen that Aronofsky can do these uh, surrealistic uh, special effects filled uh, subjective looks at... Um, at kind of a skewed universe but the wrestler like you say is it's a personal story and it it, it shot realistically it, it, it's very well directed but without uh the flashes that he would uh utilize uh both before and after and but one thing it does have in common with other works is that it's uh anchored by uh an amazing performance by Mickey Rourke, who does, uh, he, he somehow kind of replicates the uh, lovableness of, of uh, in the original Rocky uh, for hmm. me, the, in the way that he's, you know, he, he's this lived in tough guy who has been through uh, a full life as 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 a uh, a wrestling star, and then as somebody who basically we don't see it. It happened all before the movie start. Blows it all, and but still maintains this kind of innocence and lovability to him. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool that you brought up um that you brought up like that. We don't know his like history past history. Uh, the specifics necessarily of his past history as a fame, or at least we're not watching that. It makes you goes to show you that one thing that that Aronofsky is concerned about through his films is he's looking at people at the end of things through yes. all of his through all of his films. But um, uh, uh, and Mickey Rourke is just such an inspired choice for a number of reasons. For one, I believe Aronofsky actually fought for him. Like the he was due to his. Um, Mickey Rourke has um, Mickey Rourke's antics had made him 
pretty close to unemployable, uh, and uh, and definitely not as a bankable star in um, uh, in Hollywood at the time. And uh, the studios wanted uh, alternate choices. I believe they were even thinking of Nicolas Cage, <laughs> which would have mm-hmm. been an interesting movie, but definitely a different one. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and Aronofsky fought for Aronofsky fought for fought for Mickey Rourke, who's uh, uh, so and 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 insisted um, upon getting him and as a central character. Right, because Mickey Rourke's early uh, career had him kind of on the same trajectory as uh, as Sean Penn. Uh, yes, he he was uh, acclaimed in uh, Diner and uh, Rumblefish and uh, another a, a number of other very early roles where he he showed this great potential and through whatever demons actually you know haunts him and excesses uh and and just basically bad uh bad uh, script decisions uh that yeah. you know brought him down the you know the nine and a half weeks path yes and and, and whatnot he a lot of that potential went away and at one point, he decided to just switch careers altogether, and uh, and after he was less bankable as, as a movie star, and become a boxer, and mm-hmm. so you know through you know he had some uh, hard living in that way. Beers, uh, he had some some plastic surgery. Um, he when he came back, uh, specifically in Sin City, which was his big. Uh, comeback from many years uh out of out of the spotlight uh, i mean sin city had a, a lot of makeup but even when you saw him in yes. uh, behind the scenes he looked like a whole different person and the the wrestler frankly exploits that it, ex- it, it it's about a man who uh has been beaten up by life and they cast a man who at this point Looks, it seems like he really has been beaten up by life. Yeah, I mean, Mickey Rourke had like uh, he had had started off on a just uh, such an such a bright note as like in terms of like this combination of like innate acting talent and charisma and star quality, and he had just descended to become this very peculiar kind of um, um, wrecked caricature of of um, a like. A want to be a want to be tough guy kind of situation uh, brought up. I think most notably to me in a very in a kind of an infamous article by um, uh, gossip Joe Queenan saying uh, where in the article he says I'm going to try to be Mickey Rourke for like a week. He barely gets there, but he includes a count of how many times he crushes a cigarette under his boots, which numbers in kind of the hundreds, I believe. <laughs> so like. So Mickey was already a caricature back uh, back then, out in in the '90s, and his his boxing antics did not not do his body any fur any further favors, and and this is kind of like takes the kind of level uh, like his performance ha- takes the kind of level that De Niro does in Raging Bull, but like gives it an extra dimension that it really is Mickey Rourke's whose body has gone through this punishing level and has put it to such a sorry state, you know, you're, you can not just see the mileage in every, um, every fold of his, of his skin, every, uh, every strange contour of his body form, but also in his eyes and in his demeanor Mm -hmm. and, and like, and 
and even though like the movie is so so dedicated to showing just every particular detail just the, the the struggles it takes for a person to get out of bed is is given an enormous amount of respect and attention and and Aronofsky does bring his technique to bear but in a much but in a very intimate way often having the camera be right behind his head and having like the and having like the the foreground just emerge into his field of view as he walks from place to place right this is is are interesting shots because uh as a professional wrestler he's uh got these long blonde uh, locks that clearly are, 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 are not what he would naturally look like, but fits in with his character. And one of the things, uh, one of the tragic things about the character is how he um, can't function in real life as himself, but feels much more at home as his invented wrestling character and so questions of identity come up and is in who's the real guy is is it uh uh the 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 person he is who's supposed to be a father yet hasn't acted as a father to his daughter right or is it uh, and and who who is can't get into his own trailer because he can't pay the rent who's uh, doing all kinds of things that he views uh, as uh, marks him as a failure versus the adulation that he gets whenever he goes into the wrestling ring. Yes, I mean, and right, his character is uh, is brought about just really wonderfully through the combination of Rourke's performance and and Aronofsky's Aronofsky's direction of of him. Um, in, he's, he is both very weary and then yet his, his, you really feel for his desire to try to be better at a better, a better human being, uh, 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 more of an attempt of a father, like to go and try to like get a kind of not, if not normal, but some sort of fulfilling more fulfilling life. And this is also helped by his chemistry with the Marissa Tomei character, who also gives a wonderful performance. Uh, She is a stripper who is facing some parallel issues that, that Randy is facing. She also makes her living uh, on her body and also has to separate her public life as a stripper from her private life as a mom. And the, the the pseudo romance that may be able to 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 occur between the two of them is is uh, is problematic because she views that as uh, as crossing the line the idea that she can't fall for a customer because that's her the stripper not her the person right right and that right and and while she has these boundaries so I, I mean, I think the big dramatic struggle that 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 Randy the Ram has to have, which um, is is I, I believe actually like you see his name um, on his name tag when he does some brief work at a at a deli, mm-hmm. and it turns out his name is not actually Randy the Ram Robin, Robinson. It's actually Rabinowitz, mm-hmm. which is um, a, I guess an indication that like. He has not. He does not know those barriers, or or he is very. Um, it's very tough for him to make 
to define that because all of his success and his fame has been at this phony wrestling uh, performance as the Ram. All the stuff that in his mind that he's had satisfaction in his life has been as that. And, and it ties into his psychology and his physical form in a really interesting way. And one way that I would think is an actual counter to like, to Max at the pie. Like, I think, I think we're get. I think in many ways, pies almost becomes like it's, um, um, Aronofsky's origin story mm-hmm. <laughs> because so much stuff can flow from it. You can, you, if you look at his films that we've talked about and you can go back to it. And like, as I'm, as I've been doing and here, I'm looking at, I look at Max's situation and Max has to operate. He has to operate to get on his head to get the pressure out because it's too, the pressure of his knowledge is too big for him. But I think in Randy, it's the opposite. The things he, the things he know when he was famous and popular and the things that was good in his life come from him being too big. From from being constricted, right. it's within his trailer, within the ring where he's most comfortable, and he is he defines those qualities through the pain he gets, in a way that like is the opposite of what Max is going through. Right, and I view him more analogous to the kids and the characters in Requiem for a Dream, because mm. for, you know he's also got his drug which is the idea of the fame the adulation the easy life well e- easy yes. in the sense of uh yes. not that it's not filled with the pa- with pain but easy in the sense that he is loved and he right. I- 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 and that part of his life like he like he he can't he has trouble uh, I- I- igniting a romance uh, with the Marissa Tomei character, but in character, he can find a groupie yes. and you know have a night yeah. off. So yeah, yeah. G- gosh, that's that's so right. I mean, like in 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 a Requiem was like a film that's full of like full of tragic moments and 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 things that fall short. Like all one of the harshest ones I've seen, the uh, harshest moments in that movie to me was just when you see when you see like um, um, Sarah Goldfarb's dream. Mm-hmm. And which, uh, like, which was just that she has a son who she loves, and he's a nice, proper boy, and he, that he'll have a good life. That honestly, that's really all she really wanted, and that is, and and that was that's something that she was not gonna get and never going to get, you know. And 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 yeah, Rand. I mean, Rand, has Randy maybe even ever really had that kind of like relationship of like of uh, maybe even the. If he did, it was in such a distant past before his fame as a wrestler that maybe he doesn't even recognize what that would be. Well, I think we're given hints by his estranged relationship with his daughter, um, who he, uh, through uh, Marissa Tomei's encouragement, tries to uh, reunite with. Uh, she's played by Evan Rachel Wood, and uh, she is none too happy to see him. And we, we don't, you know, again, he's, he seems to be as nice as can be to her in the course of this movie, but we could only, you know, she does mention that she, he was never there for her in her youth and in her growing up. And now after he's had a heart attack, uh, he wants to bring her back into yeah. his life. And so uh, we, we get hints of the you know possibly the selfishness and the the prior sins that caused him to 
to lose what he had because you know we, we see clippings and references to him being like a big time professional wrestler but the wrestling we see in the movie are all in these dingy little uh clubs uh yes. that, that, that are not uh wrestlemania right. ready but that, that kind of brings brings out uh kind of another very important part of the film which in addition to being a uh, personal portrait is also a very cool look behind the scenes of professional wrestling and we see uh real wrestlers play other wrestlers in the film we see some of the secrets behind uh the fakery of, of professional wrestling right. this, this this movie had the good fortune to come out after the wrestling community decided it was uh, all right to admit that it was all fake and it was all a show and we weren't going to try to uh convince us that uh, that it's that real but real, but, yeah. but seeing the dynamics behind how uh the matches are uh decided ahead of time how the two enemies on in the ring they are going to work with each other right they're going to work together to create their storyline to do things even like uh randy uh has a little uh um a razor blade uh that he uh yes. puts in his uh on him uh during the course of a match so that he could cut himself so it appears that he's suffered uh uh injury and is bleeding yes that's right and there's like a, a, a really desperate section which is done in an and an even even in an uh, event that's maybe considered outside even for wrestling, where they are like using like shards of they their shards of glass or barbed wire that are used, like that that are um, that make things like in, in increasingly likely more likely for bleeding to occur. And a staple gun. Yeah, <laughs> and the right exactly, and a staple gun. I mean, like this way of like yes i mean this way of like using wrestling and the performance to define yourself through your own pain is just a really really uh interesting exploration onto like what what people get out of like watching that kind of performance and it's also a look at what randy gets out of that like mm -hmm. there's a really there's a really notable scene that i think is kind of key to the movie where he has some temporary work at, at a deli counter and uh and which is a very fun sequence initially um, when he is, um, because he's improvised, because Mickey Rourke is actually improvising with real deli customers mm -hmm. and doing a level of pattern. And there, there you see the showman, <coughs> pardon me, there, 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 you see the showman Randy coming out to go and like, um, entertain people. And, and he's getting a measure of like self-respect out there. But then an unfortunate person comes in and reminds him, Hey, aren't you Randy the Ram? Hey, what are you doing over here? What are you working on a deli counter? What's going on? And caught in his own shame, what is he he gets he gets kicked out of job by punching the machine that slices the meat. It's through pain and disfigurement. That's the way that that is his reflex. That's his go to move mm -hmm. is to violate his own body to go and like because that's a way that he finds a psychological definition for himself, something that gives him own meaning. Which has uh, ramifications once he has his heart attack. Yes. And now we understand that the reason he has to work jobs like that and uh, compromise what, what he sees as his real self, meaning his uh, wrestler persona, is that he knows that if he goes into the ring that he takes his life into his hands because, uh, you know, 
a man in his 50s who's been what he's been through and has just, you know, I think in the timeline it had probably been a few months ago, had a, had a heart attack, is putting himself uh, at, at great risk when he returns to the ring, which he does. And so now you kind of go back to the self-destructive obsession yeah. uh, that's full, uh, you know, the, that Aronofsky trades in. And, and, and now you apply it uh, in this situation as well because, you know, it, it's to the extent that he would sacrifice anything to be the self that, uh, that he prefers. Um, yeah, well, there, see, that's actually part of the equation, though, um, because it's unfortunately, it, uh, like, the, like the Requiem characters, he ends up losing these opportunities along the way. So there is, in fact, no, there is nothing left for him except the ring. Right. Th- that is one way this movie is different, is that it's not just internal. The The external world has limited him as it, well. It's a very, very small scale, and this is a, this may be a crazy analogy, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to make it. It reminds me of the really great line, of one many great lines, from Lawrence of Arabia, when, Lor- when Lawrence is uh, ostensibly going back to get a small cottage in, 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 um, uh, back in... Uh, back in um, England and uh, and Auda says no it's uh, a hill there, there's only the desert for him there's only the ring for and uh, there's only the ring for Randy and in fact that's all that he finds that's left you know and and so it leads to this really fascinating moment at the end it got good lord does Aronofsky know how to end his films <laughs> my god like he's like it's not. It's amazing for not just he's in the ring, and it's clear that his heart condition is he's in bad shape. He's uh, like he honestly should be in a hospital, but yet his fellow wrestlers, partly, and I and 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 to me it seems like there other his fellow wrestlers in the ring at the time help him and make it pretend like he is still participating right. in he, the choreography. Right. He says, "Just pin me. Just pin me." Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and I mean, what do you think about that? Like, I think that like it's fifty percent that they the show must go on, mm-hmm. but it's also fifty percent that they know it's important for him to be is still in the ring. Well, also it's it, it can't. He's got a major heart surgery scar, so they know that he ha- has these health issues. It's right. not some he can keep that a secret from other people, but he can't keep that a secret from. Uh, his fellow wrestlers. So, you know, when you see him go off script and uh, basically lose himself in the same way uh, that we're going to see discussed in our next film, yeah. uh, you know, it, 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 it becomes a, like a point of no return. And, yes. um, mm-hmm. and, and a really powerful, dramatic moment. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, at uh, yeah at that ending, there's a uh, the uh, the concluding moments have him in a position he's found himself in all throughout his life, over on the top rope, ready to go and like leap, and in a, mo- a movement like right out of the ending of like Thumb and Louise, but but with even but with more ambigu- ambiguity, you see him like do his patented touching of his own elbows, mm-hmm. of, and then he leaps in the air and he's. And he disappears off from the frame before it cuts. 
Did he pin him? Did he survive? We we're left we're left wondering. And we're but ultimately, I think in Randy's case, I think Randy. Uh, to me, I think Randy thinks he's at that moment he's triumphed because he's done the one thing that he recognizes he's good at. And what do yeah. you think? Yes, at the uh, uh, yes, it's the last moment. We see we the the film cuts at exactly that point because what happens next is probably very tragic, and because I, I I frankly don't think he survives. That's okay. just my own interpretation mm-hmm. of. Uh, of the film uh, you know e- e- even if he does though you know he's not going to be able to maintain right this illusion he's not going to be able to maintain this life so we we do get to see him as as we study this character and his hopes and dreams uh in in a one one last moment of triumph yeah and i mean you want yeah and and compared with requiem's like requiem's ending is definitive those guys are screwed. Mm-hmm. It's I, interesting. I mean, I'm that, pretty sure Randy's screwed too. <laughs> yes, but don't. Uh, yes, but I find it interesting that 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 for whatever reason, um, Aronofsky decides to give him this moment, mm-hmm. which is shown in a way that looks like it's triumphant. You hear the roar of the crowd behind him, or at least in Randy's point of view, he's doing his winning move, right. the move that he's known mm-hmm. for. And I don't think it's being a sour note. I think. Aronofsky's really trying to say, well, what does that mean for in in terms of his performance and his in his own life to be able if you're going to go out to go out like that, to have that moment of even even fake glory. Well, you know what it, I mean? As it turns out, he's not done with that question. That's right. There were some reports that like that like that that the story that the wrestler became was going to be half about the subject of wrestling. Mm hmm. And then half of the subject of a, of, a, of a young woman trying to succeed in ballet. That became the subject of his in, of his next film, Black Swan, in 2010. Uh, the young ballerina in question is um, uh, Nina Sayers, played by Natalie Portman, and uh, she is a incredibly talented and driven um, uh, ballerina uh, who, like in the wrestler, we get to see all the little sacrifices she makes to both her body and her. And uh, to her outfits and to her life that she sacrifices in order to become a successful ballerina. But then she gets the opportunity of a, of literally, a lifetime to play the, the, um, uh, swan, the lead in Swan Lake. But the lead in Swan Lake requires her to play both the white swan, the innocent, pure white swan, and then the dark, sinister black swan, to which the director while giving her the role does have some does have some doubts as to whether she can play that level of darkness and at the same time coincidentally or is it a rival shows up on the scene 
who is a little too effective at playing the elements of the black swan. So it looks at her journey as, as can she effectively do both parts of this performance and what, just what does it take for that to happen? Well, it would have been fascinating to see the double feature because as is, you end up seeing uh, the wrestler in Black Swan uh, having kind of a similar story arc but they could not be more different stylistically. Mm -hmm. Whereas the wrestler is Aronofsky's um, re most realistic film, The Black Swan is his most out there. And you mentioned Cronenberg uh, and, and body horror before, and Black Swan is really where this uh, instinct is, is taken to its most extreme. Yes. Uh, it's also anchored by another fantastic performance, this time by Natalie Portman, who, um, uh, in addition to having to uh, develop the physicality of a ballet dancer, also um, uh, pl plays uh, Nina as a very, uh, as very much an innocent as someone who is a brilliant dancer, but all she has known and cares about is her life is dancing. Again, the issue of obsession, which is encouraged uh, very unhealthily by her mother, uh, played by Barbara Hershey, who uh, she still lives with. She's 28, but she still lives, lives with her mother. She still lives in a room that looks like a little girl's room. Yeah. She is a, a victim of stunted growth in so many ways yeah. that has prepared her to play the, the, the white swan, but left her without any of the facilities that she would need to A, be a well-rounded person, or B, play the black swan. Um, yes, that's, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, like, looking at that, comparing it to Wrestler is a fascinating contrast on the yin and yang, how Ran Randy the Ram has to get too much body. His body is too big. But, but for the female side of it, it has to be diminished, has to be smaller, and ironically, more resembling like a bird. Right, but just as athletic. Right, yeah. e exactly. Like the, the, uh, right, the, sacri right, the sacrifices are equal, but they, move, but they move the body in different directions depending on, on the gender. But, uh, but a big difference and what is not equal between uh, Randy and Nina is their mental state. Uh, whereas uh, R Randy has all kinds of issues, he still understands that there is a real life she, uh, that he has to leave. Nina is actually the char uh, a character I would associate more with Max and Pi. And I, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Pi in, in court, uh, <coughs> as far as The Wrestler goes. Yeah. I think Black Swan might be the film that, that most uh, echoes Pi in its progression because we see the results of, uh, of her trials is, is that in order to bring the Black Swan into her life, she sacrifices her sanity and she becomes really as... Um, difficult to a difficult connection with reality that as as max has mm, mm, yes like over the course of these films like i mean if there's another common thread that i think can tie into 
Aronofsky's work is that he's able to deliver a, deliver a level of personal and visceral intimacy that we as an audience can share with the characters. Yes, she is... Um, um, Nina is going crazy, but we get why she's going crazy, and we get the particular re ways, the ways that her, the ways that her um, uh, craziness manifests themselves, are are become understandable. You you see why she is like seeing like um, her rival in places where the rival should not be. Right, because she mirrors play a huge part in this film and uh what she sees in mirrors may not uh, usually will not be an accurate reflection of what she should be seeing in mirrors but uh you're exploring this duality of this character whose again fictional counterparts are pulling her in two different directions uh, just just a, a quick reference back to Pi because there actually is a, 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 a cute callback to Pi in the okay. film. Uh, in in Pi, there's a scene on a train where uh, Max runs into this uh, unsavory older man who is uh, singing uh, rather disturbingly on the train, and the same actor is in uh, White Swan, uh, Black, Black Swan, Black. playing uh -huh. uh, another passenger on the train. Uh, this time, making uh, lewd uh, <laughs> uh, overtures towards Nina. Yeah, so so he gets the subway right. That's for in New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now, so the other thing that's fascinating to me ab about this film is its exploration of genre. Because while there is a lot of character work going on, a lot of great acting, at the end of it, it takes the form of a horror film. It utilizes... Uh, jump scares techniques and, and, and in Aronofsky's uh, hands utilizes them as effectively as many great horror films yeah. and um, various points when she is mistaken uh, the identity uh, uh, sometimes she'll uh, see somebody and they'll have her own face yes uh, and and it's uh, reminiscent uh, in theme of uh, Roman Polanski's uh, repulsion, a oh, little bit nice. in how the and and uh, in how a um, uh, so this lifelong psychology can not only be damaging but can be shown viscerally in a horror way. Oh my God, that's a that's such a great comparison. Yeah, it, re repulsion is like like this example of a of a broken a broken woman's like like mental state expressed like so well through the claustrophobic and, and and curved environments of the apartment she's she finds herself in and this is this is using um yeah this is and black swan uses that broken environment in a way to show how fractured her own psyche is through all the use of mirrors like the way i'm looking the way when i look at black swan it's saying something really interesting psychologically about that while Randy has had an ego, Randy from The Wrestler, the Ram, has been defined from his ego, from, the, his, from his actions and fame in the wrestling, we're, talking, looking at a, we're looking at a young woman who has yet to achieve that fame. And so the ego must be built. That's how I take the fact that 
she keeps seeing herself in all these reflections. It's her level mm -hmm. of burgeoning self-awareness that she doesn't really possess when she's in her, like, um, infantilized, like, room still living with her mother. Right, because if you look at the people around her, you have uh, Winona Ryder plays uh, the former star of the dance company who is now... Uh, in the world of ballet, considered uh, too old and yeah. will uh, basically have to retire. And, you know, Nina, we see her through Nina's eyes as a future fate that she would like to avoid, but she probably knows is inevitable, um, right. as inevitable as death in the fountain. <laughs> and yeah. it's just something that's coming. And then you have uh, uh, Mila Kunis uh, playing... Uh, a new dancer who uh, comes in and she's kind of a wild party girl and she sees her as in essence the black swan to her white swan so when their identities become intertwined you really have a uh, a, a, a really quality use of psychological horror going oh on. definitely like what is the right like in, in what side is like in in what side that like how Nina is uh, Nina is attracted or or repulsed by what Lily the the wanna, would be rival mm -hmm. is and also it leads also uh, the film does a great job of la leaving it leaving it kind of an open question as to whether Kunis's character is really struggling to do to upend upend Nina's. Uh, performance or in fact this is just nina's own psychology impressing upon it right we've returned to the uh, subjectivity of pi as yes. well where you can we as viewers cannot trust reality in this film we are looking at everything through natalie portman's point of view yeah and it, it is it, it is a, a point of view that cannot be trusted yeah and 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 like it does this look of like the way it's making a sense of that the performance and her growth and Nina's development of an ego is so tied in with her sexuality. Like it's the thing that causes her to not be like a fully formed person has just been the lack of is this lack of sexuality and the way how she like how she reacts to it with with Lily and then like in this in this borderline like deliriously absurd sequence in some ways where she's um, um, uh, like on the, on the bed with, with all these stuffed animals observing her. Mm -hmm. Like, like it's done for kind of, it's done for some really disturbing comic effect, but it's, uh, but it's highlighting this incongruity and it leads out to the end. In fact, to the ending sequence that t it ties into, uh, there is a, a um, an area of blood that shows up, but, you could even look at it in a way that it that it could be that she's experienced her first like her first menstrual cycle. Oh, that that makes complete sense in in, in context. Uh, this is a uh, a coming of age movie for an adult who 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 never did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, and 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 like what I mean, and what does that say about like? And I mean, I think what it says about like um through its through the crazy imagery that it does, I think it really makes an, an, a fascinating statement upon what does it mean to give yourself to a per to give yourself to do a performance i mean if lily really exists if lily didn't quote unquote exist in the film 
Maybe that maybe Nina had to create her. Maybe Nina creates the rival so that she herself can that that challenges herself to get into the role. Right, uh, another uh, horror element uh, that you know y- you might see in a film like *Dress to Kill*, where uh, a character develops a second persona that ends up uh, being a slasher. Yes. So, and, and in this case, her uh, her drive to play the Bat Black Swan is so great that it it it, 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 it creates this second persona, yeah. but also destroys. Her her own persona and that kind of connects it with another film uh that it shares some dna with which is uh powell and pressburger's the red shoes oh yes uh, another, which is another film uh about a uh, star ballerina and uh in that case uh the ballet she's performing is called the red shoes and uh it's about uh, how, and the shoes end up uh, possessing her, the dancer. Yeah. And as we see Natalie Portman literally turn into a swan. Yes. Uh, and, and and show you know signs full of, with feathers and whatnot. Uh, you see echoes from from that previous film, but also. Uh, an exhilarating uh, cinematic moment uh, on its own, utilizing the music from Swan Lake, and um, and reaching a, a a a pretty intense climax. Yes. Oh my God. You're so you're so right about that. I, I mean, I I can't I can't agree with you more on that because to me that's one of like the most thrilling in a in a in a career which even through the films we've discussed has. Tons of astounding cinematic moments. That's one of my favorites because, like, throughout this movie, Nina has been, um, and Portman has portrayed her as this, like, this kind of figure who hasn't fully grown, you know? And yet, in that, and, 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 and she is cast with doubts, and, and her, she can't even trust her own mind in so many cases. And her, her mother may not be the ally that she uh, had trusted her to be, mm-hmm. um, which, 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 is also fascinating in that it's you were given an implication that she was a failed that her mother was uh, did not make it to Nina's height uh, even at this point right yeah and 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 she manifests her like her mother manifests through paintings and the paintings go and um and there's a moment where the paintings are yelling accusations at Nina and just like such a really interesting way of like yeah why is is her mother painting this stuff right but but in that moment of the dance it's it. It is such a case, and I think it even transcends the equivalent moment in the Red Shoes. It's a case of a performer get quote getting a performance, just so into that moment, and and Portman delivers it so well. I love the moment where she's she she like her dancing is so frenetic and it's so delivered that she's literally becoming sprouting feathers. But then she steps off stage and you see her eyes are are blood red. Because she's been inhabiting the black swan, but then there's a countenance to her face and a and a and a and a, and a um, confidence to her posture that just says, "Yeah, I own it." And I'm coming right back out for this curtain call where she, like, I believe, fully sprouts wings and mm-hmm. arches her back to like this rousing applause. And it's just, and I don't know if I've seen, well, definitely not in that way. I don't know if I've seen a scene where someone just owns a moment and takes it and 
basks in it all in like this sustained sequence. And A tremendous sa- achievement. And sacrifices everything for it. She does. Yes. She uh, right she does and she does and doesn't and does. At the end there's a, a moment where she falls. She mm-hmm. falls backwards. Backwards as opposed to Randy the Ram who falls forwards right. for the same reason. And she's had a, a she has had a wound. And it's kind of been and as people are gathering around her like because her it's a conclusion of the play and uh, you can hear from the applause and it's just a rousing triumph. And as people gather around her like I think it fades out on Natalie Portman's face and you're left wondering is this like a fatal wound? Will she ever get back up? Like I really like that particular like the the wound itself to me was not does not look like something that would be fatal that would have or or rather due, partly due to her dancing it's not something that impeded her dancing in any way which I would have thought a real fatal wound would have done. Right. But I think the way I look at it is that is that she could have died for it. That's an absolutely a fair reading. But it also was just a sacrifice. Also, just something uh, like an ailment that she had to deal with. One of many, like the like as the movie's gone on to show, like the damage the damage these ballerines have done to their weight, to their um, figures, to their feet, and what have you. And this is just another thing that you had to do. It, it could also represent the death of her innocence. It could be the yes. death of the White Swan. Yes. Because she is in the White Swan persona when it appears that she might be dying. Yes. So, and, and, and again, the uh, trick of the film is that nothing we see is reliable. Right. Everything can be actually happening or it could be symbolic. Right. And yeah. then, like, and then we can also look at it as, as her burgeoning. It's her, it's her burgeoning self as a, a she becomes a woman. At that, at that, like, kind of moment, because it's finally, she is, her, she is not, she does not appear to be in pain at the end. She looks, has a level of satisfaction, which ultimately goes to the, her really dying is in the sense that, like, she has given every, just like Randy has, Mm -hmm. she has given every bit of herself, including a, a dark persona she's created out of her own, or possibly, to do this performance, when you do that, I think what the movie is trying to say is there is nothing left. She may as well be, she may as well be dead, because everything about her, everything she could come up with, everything she could present to any other human being, she has done in that performance. Indeed. Like uh, yeah, a, a real a real stunning look at that kind of at this kind of ideas of performance persona of um and and sacrifice and the ways that attacks people's internal psychology and our bodies ourselves and you get to see them in two films back to back uh from different perspectives but variations on the same themes exactly yes exactly right yeah and and from then from 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 then on like um Animals feature prominently in his next film. The island 
that is silent now, but the ghosts still haunt the ways. And that torch lights up a famished man who fortune could not save. Aronofsky um, uh, took on a uh, took on a very interesting project with um, to follow this up with um, uh, another very water based film. <laughs> um, uh, Noah in 2014. It's your, you know, it's your standard like you know, um, a boy meets girl, boy has three uh, children from girl, boy gets message to uh, build a big boat for a deluge, to, to <laughs> and a boy takes a lot of animals to <laughs> to spare them from said deluge. You so, know, some of you may be familiar with this story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're right. It's um. Uh, it's it's a re-origin story in a, of sorts, <laughs> as as like the world is as the world's like turned wicked and um, and um, uh, Noah played here by Russell Crowe gets uh, gets a message that he needs to that he needs to go and um, uh, visit a old relative a very old relative in this case uh, Methuselah played by Anthony Hopkins and and from them they divine that there is a a disaster is coming, but a disaster not of fire, which consumes everything, but water, which Noah believes will cleanse everything. And this and this leads him on his mission to go and get the, the, his mission for the ark, to which like um, uh, he um, the ark gets then later met with all sorts of uh, all sorts of different beasts, but then also with a also with a tribal leader who has um, 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 uh, who has like sent a bunch of uh, an army to try and um, uh, see what's up with all these birds and animals going this direction, and um, uh, maybe he can go grab this ark for himself, and then um, uh, the delu- uh, the storm it shows that there is a lot of uh, some more divisions going on than just like surviving the storm, and that might be the least of the problems. <laughs> of some of the people who are on the ark with Noah. You know, I, I really feel for Aronofsky in the in this situation. Uh, the the biblical story of Noah is a very short one without a lot of detail. Um, it, it's certainly vivid uh, in what it portrays, the literal end of the world. But uh, since there's not a lot of detail in the source material, Aronofsky uh, felt he had to build it up to a, a two-hour running length uh, through a lot of things that he added of his own invention and, in my opinion, falls short. I, I think that uh, while there are certainly some compelling moments, some good performances, and, and, and it's a movie, it's a film that looks good, for me... This is the only Aronofsky film that falls uh, well below uh, the level that I feel he's he's been working at, and uh, and uh, one one of the problems you know kind of raises the issue of of ad, of adaptation because among the changes to the film is that the uh, the very core of the Bible story is that God chooses Noah to be uh, the last man and the last family on earth 
because they are the last good people. The, 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 the Bible explicitly states that the rest of the world has gone completely evil, and this is uh, basically the last good man, yet that's not how Aronofsky chooses to portray Noah. In fact, uh, one of the first things he does in the film is, is kill a guy. Now, it is in self-defense, but it, it still shows uh, very much... A, a break and uh, basically uh, as played by Russell Crowe, uh, Noah comes to the conclusion that not only that, 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 that humans, humanity should be eliminated altogether, even to the extent of him being uh, willing to entertain the killing of his own family to uh, make this happen, which uh, again, I'm not going to say that uh, the film's, based on the Bible or any other source, shouldn't have some leeway, but you've really now taken the entire point of the Noah story and you're just no longer doing it. It's, it's something else altogether now. Um, well, I mean, you're, you're okay. You're talking on the point of a story that, you know, I, 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 that, I mean, I personally just find like is, I mean, I don't know if it even works as an effective fairy tale. It is a, like, if you give it applied the slightest scrutiny to it, it falls apart in myriad ways. So just, I mean, like, you can ask the smallest children and they will say, so I guess God really likes the fish, then, for <laughs> example. Because <coughs> they will survive a flood, the saltwater ones anyway, will survive a flood quite well. Right. <laughs> you know, and then, and then, and then, uh, like the the one good man. I mean, really, really, really. It's uh, like even if there's a couple of kids who are out there, <laughs> they also succumb to not just a death but a drowning death, which is one of the worst ways that someone can uh, can mm -hmm. meet their demise. <laughs> you know, it's um. But but like, we're I mean we're not here to go and look at inconsistencies on the story. It's in fact I'm 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 actually impressed in a lot of ways by the movie in the way that, like, Aronofsky has a very difficult, very, very difficult mission to, to make this story. Because, like, as you say, it's a very short story. To right. actually tell the story literally from the Bible quote would take, I think, maybe ten minutes to do. And ju just to clarify, I, I don't think a faithful uh, version of the story would have fared uh, that much better. I think his, his decisions here do not work but also what would not work uh, because the Noah story is so much more uh, a fable than, uh, th than a realistic uh, yeah. story, even in the, uh, in the context of biblical stories. It's, it, it's among the most fantastic and least uh, fleshed out. So, uh, un unfortunately, from my point of view, my I ideal version of this film is one that would never have been made. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I would, I would kind of, I would, I would posit that, I would posit that as well. It's that, like, um, um, that could be right because it's not even that, like, it's not even that the story itself is short. That the, um, that it, that there's a lot of implications between the practic, between the idea of building an ark. A one guy building an ark, or um, uh, or the or the animal stuff like, 
again, if you, you wander, but may, again, maybe it's because of my math background, but when you start wandering around to logistics, you immediately <laughs> step on a landmine and, and blow up. <laughs> um, but then also, it's such a, I mean, um, religion is such a touchy subject. And, and in a lot of cases, you really don't know whether a depiction of Noah as being too stern or not stern enough about having too big or too small of a family or what, or, or how he treats the animals. You don't really have any way of knowing which way that like, which will, what people will find be offended by is what I'm getting at. Right. I think, I think notably just a little detail about the movie is that like, this is one of the first movies where the cut was taken away from Aronofsky briefly and they literally cut the movie three different ways against his wishes to try and show it in front of focus groups. And it turns out that they didn't that that they didn't like the alternate cuts any better. Right. So it turns out that <laughs> that he his vision did make it to the screen, but not by his intent, but because by a default. And and it turned out one of the things that uh, that bothered mo- uh, a lot of people who had a problem with the film uh, are what what I'll lovingly refer to as the rock monsters, uh, which are not. <laughs> the, 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 they're actually Van quite Halen, that's the right. They, they are quite central to the film. They're not. They don't just make appearances. They uh, they, they look like uh, something more from the imagination of uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings than anything right. else, and create uh, epic uh, action sequences of destruction. These are the 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 the, the story behind them, uh, and, and there's an attempt to create kind of a, a, a biblical reasoning, is that they are the fallen angels right. who um, have been kicked out of heaven by God and sent to earth, and as rays of light, they smash into the, into the earth, and then the earth becomes their skin, and they, they become what looks to me like rock monsters, even though they're angels, which, again, opens up a, a lot of questions, uh, one, yeah. of, one of which is um, why are the fallen angels the ones who are helping God's last good man? It's a... Mm, right, yeah. right, right. I mean, they, right, they were, um, I mean, I guess they were very, their loyalty even um, even exceeds the idea that they, their their punishment or maybe they felt their punishment was a a just one for some other activity they had they, they had done that would cast that would cast them down to earth i think they were I believe they were called watchers watchers yes but then they mm-hmm. but then they actually in a in a promethean term ironically they had aided humanity at some point and that's why they were cast into the cast into the earth in a way that i i found at least interesting in the how they Emerge as like almost like these volcanic as like these volcanic figures, right? I mean, there, there's this, uh, you know, we've we've kind of talked about how uh, Aronofsky's special effects have generally not gone with uh, modern trends, and he's uh, he he's done them very uniquely, often eschewing um, CGI. Here, he embraces CGI totally. Not not like he has a choice; these things can't be done yes. otherwise. But the, but the rock monsters in particular give kind of t- give for a movie that is otherwise very self serious is is to me a, a silly element mm-hmm. that uh, you know I mean there's a tradition of kind of silly biblical epics in the fifties uh, from right. Hollywood and whatnot but uh, 
the, 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 the steps right, right into it, in, in my opinion. What, like, yeah. Aronofsky has shown in his previous movies, he's very brave and um, to go and make things potentially look silly. Mm-hmm. Like, you, again, you have, we have a movie with a menacing refrigerator, okay? Yeah. Yet he's like tackled that as an idea, and right. he made that work. He made it work. There's moments in <laughs> there's moments in the wrestler, and um, there's moments in the wrestler and Black Swan the same way. They're they're they get to the border of ridiculousness, but he he has this confidence to jump in and is able to pull that off. And to me, I guess part of my, uh, I it, they worked for me because they be, uh, because partly because I find the the story fantastical anyway. Partly because it introduces a bit of, I guess in a similar, ironically, in a similar way to like how Jackson adapted Lord of the Rings, he added certain elements to try and make, like, try and connect these incongruous moments in the original work. And, and I respect and value kind of that, that attempt that if you're, if you're going to make a story about building an arc, you might want to ask like, well, how did the arc get built by Noah and like three kids? <laughs> Like mm-hmm. and having rock monsters on your side turns out to help uh, <laughs> help help out on that, you know. And and so I I appreciated that. Like, and then then when other people try to take the arc, it's not Noah and three kids trying to defend it, but like he has he has some aid. And and while that might not make like you know, it, like you said, it does ask more questions. It does, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I appreciate that the effort was made to. To answer that, and there's uh, there's certain other things where uh, I also liked, like how the animals were put to sleep, which asked the you know which leads to why why the why lions haven't devoured half the population of the ark after forty right, years. Right, but it loses an opportunity because where we have all this spectacle of of the rock monsters and the invading hordes of uh, of the sons of Cain to uh, attack the the ark. Um, what you what is lost is aside from a few quick shots, we don't see the main spectacle that's actually in the original story, which is the animals uh, in their all their glory coming. And we we see some individual shots: one one with yeah. birds, one with snakes, another with uh, beasts. But they're very quick and very low key. And I'm just thinking, well, if you want to do spectacle, perhaps the the concept of bringing in two of every single animal on the planet could be an opportunity there. Well, I guess, I mean, there's, I mean, but, but then you, if you had a scene where say like a bunch of antelope coming in and then there's a bunch of panthers walking behind them and you were given a good moment to dwell on why the panthers (laughs) aren't licking their lips at the prospect. I think maybe he gave about as much time and separating the into different phases because there are phases of the birds arrive first Mm -hmm. Then, then insects, uh, to which I would have loved to have one of his kids go, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, you know, and then like um, and, and then um, uh, and then then the larger animals, and then I mean, 
I, I would only hope there would be a deleted scene where, the, you know, the, the unicorns and dinosaurs were not let on. Right, floor. right. <laughs> Although there is a scene where the uh, uh, an animal that uh, does not exist is, is shot and killed. A, uh, right. What looks like uh, maybe a deer but with scales instead yes. of fur is yes, uh, that's right. killed. So they, 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 they hint in, in, in that direction. That, that, right, that there are certain – right. And I mean and, – and I think that was – I think that was kind of cool, a cool take on the story, and I, I, I very much appreciate that Aronofsky took it in an ecological direction, because it is because maybe even back when the story was originally set, because it, it, when the original when the story was originally um, uh, came about, like it was an area that was beset upon by different you know by plagues and, and droughts and so on, where the sense of life having to start over is a lot more prevalent than than in our society today, right? Right. You know, yeah. and, and like the way that it makes it like that society gets society in the story in Aronofsky's Noah just get industrialized. But the way it's shown and I think um, is could almost be as equally post apocalyptic as it is um as it is like uh, from ancient times because there's these polluted like pools of water and these mining areas that have been abandoned. And it could be that it's our future as much as our past. Well, the the film does make a point of referring to the Adam and Eve story as something that, uh, at this point um, in, in history, would to to these characters have seemed much more immediate, uh, as it's uh, as, as the the. Um, it's told in a, in in a quick prologue, uh, the Adam and Eve story, and 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 then the Cain and Abel story, yeah. and it's established that the uh, evil men on Earth, who are all the men except for everyone except for Noah's family, are the descendants of Cain. Yeah. But Noah is the descendant of Adam and Eve's uh, third child, mm-hmm. uh, Seth, who does not feature prominently, but is is mentioned in the Bible, which again leads to the question because there are points at which. It's made clear that the uh, descendants of Cain would love nothing more than to kill the descendants of Seth. Who are these? One, who is this one family who has somehow managed to survive every uh, through all the generations, right? Uh, with everyone else on the planet wanting them dead. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. That's then, quite a that then there's the Methuselah character, uh, played by Anthony Hopkins, who is uh, Noah's uh, grandfather, and uh, and. And this version is a wizard of some kind. Yeah, that's right. He's given like these mist. He's given these like kind of mystical abilities, which, um, which yeah, is not uh, is needless to say not part of the not part of the original story. Right. And, and adds a kind of level of and adds a kind of level of lineage, which I don't know. I don't know what you feel about it. It might kind of detract from the story in the sense that it turns is that it turns like the idea that Noah was chosen for the things he did. Or the kind of person he, or the kind of he person he was through the actions he took, more than like, well, no, 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 you're the son of Methuselah, who's a nice, who's a really important, nice guy. Right, he's chosen for his lineage, yeah. not for his uh, morality, um, which probably along with uh, him. Well, well, I mean, it fits in with my first complaint, which is that Noah is not depicted as a particularly good man. You know, he's might be, you know, he, he he doesn't go through with the murders that he contemplates. But uh, I, again, there there's kind of there's 
you know, what is the spirit of the story? And at one, you know, and you could change all kinds of details of the story, but if you change the spirit of the story, you know, are you still telling the same story? Well, right. That's a that's a uh, absolutely a fair a, f- a fair point. But if the if said story is something that could be told in like a um, a five minute radio play, is is maybe the adaptations fe- fealty to the ad- adaptation of the original point of the story? Is that maybe the most important thing? I mean. As as an I mean as an adaptation I mean what do you I mean what do you feel is like in the original story what do you think is like the like kind of what makes Noah in the Bible what do you think is the reason it's there? Well, the establishment of the idea that man has become so fallen, so full of sin that God felt the need to start over. To say that um, the you know you you see uh, a number of references back to the Garden of Eden, and ironically enough, um, Aronofsky returns uh, to the hip hop montage of the drug scenes in an earlier film, but this time quick shots of the tree, the snake. And um, the and the which apple, is pulsing, right? Which is pulsing and, and looking yes. like a heart. Which I really, I really like what mm-hmm. I really like what the, what uh, what is uh, what is implied by that, right? You know? But but the you know, the, but but then again, it, it, if the reason that God chooses to destroy humanity is is the inherent evilness of what men has become. If you choose to have the protagonist, the one who in the original story is is defining characteristic as his goodness, remove that characteristic, then have that character basically advocate for going even for the complete destruction of humanity, for the character who is originally supposed to be depicted as good to say, not only am I not good, but we we don't deserve to live. Now I know Aaron, Aronofsky gets uh, yeah. you know can get dark, but you know <laughs> is some of the darkness uh, you know a little misplaced here? Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean the yeah the I mean the original story. Of course, it's very very short. The original tale though is not it is not really is is mostly positive in the idea like oh you get the animals and the animals nothing untoward happens to the animals on the ark and and eventually they're uh spoiler alert to a ten thousand uh, to a right. couple thousand year old story they're like they make it and they're fruitful and multiply right um however like i think what is what is added in the noah story what makes it what got an entry in the bible i think my personal take totally 100 percent personal take on it is that it is I think it was meant to show that man and humanity have a responsibility to take care of to take care of animals mm-hmm. and 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 creatures who uh, and other creatures in and and that and that God infuses a level of responsibility for man to take care of to take care of that. And that's some um, and obviously that's kind of can have de- suspiciously can sound like a pro environmental message which may or may not rub people the wrong way, but I kind of think that's kind of what is got it included in the original story in the first place. And that's something that Aronofsky pursues upon it. But then also the notion of goodness, it's a little like in the story, original story, it's treated as like, Bob, Noah's a good guy. Everyone else is bad, but he's good. 
what is that? But what does it good? But it does no nothing to elaborate on what does good mean. Right, but know? Aronofsky could have elaborated on that, but chose not to. Well, he he's. Oh, you mean? Oh, okay. Yeah. <coughs> well, sorry. You like see him? Right. You see? Well, no. What he cares for me? He cares for his kids. He cares for the environment because he tells his kids to like only take from nature what we need. Um, uh, like, and, 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 and he, I mean, he cares for, and he cares for his wife. I mean, I don't, like, I, could he, could he have put more scenes where he shows virtue? I guess that's certainly possible. Well, well, there, there's also the, there's also the, the plot, yeah, there's wow. also the plot point of that, um, you know, he, he's so committed to the destruction of humanity that he is, he threatens to and almost stabs his infant granddaughters. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, now we're, <laughs> we're beyond kind of uh, the idea. I mean, he doesn't. I guess that's what well, makes him well, uh, right. well, redeemable. Like, but, you I, know. I mean, I think, I think Aronofsky is fair in that sequence mm-hmm. because he, there is a moment where there is a moment where his family obviously are very, uh, are, are very um, against his idea of doing just that very action. And, and, and they, in fact, one person, I think, even counters saying, but you're supposed to, you're a good man. I know you, Noah, you're a good man. And, and, and Noah's reply in Aronofsky's movie is, God didn't choose me to be because I'm a good man. He chose me because he knew I would do his will. Mm-hmm. And so I think Aronofsky's Noah is more of akin to, like, more of akin to, his characters in Aronofsky's films more than the biblical Noah in his fable form was meant was meant to do, and 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 I think that's a very and I think that's a very fair way to take it. Again, if you're going to make a story on Noah, you have to rectify this fundamental thing about like that Noah at some point Noah and his family and his family and the wives of his family members are inside the ark, and there are people screaming outside, and in a way like. Isn't Noah not letting anyone else on board equally as cruel and equally as capricious as well? No, it's not because it's not his own family. Mm-hmm. But that's but to a sense of whether he's a good man or not, isn't that a distinction without a difference? Interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, um, but yeah, I guess we do run into the idea of like if you're gonna adapt the story, but should the story have been adapted? And I honestly, I think, I think like to the extent that he made that decision to do it. I'm glad he did because it does ask these very interesting questions about what does it mean for your faith? What does it mean when, because there's a biblical story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Mm-hmm. Where also asks that kind of fundamental question. If, if this, if God tells you to do that, how do you trust that that is the right thing? And how much, how much of, you know, does your free will and your allegiance to him co- uh, collide? Right, and I suspect that the, the, that is the story that uh, Aronofsky had in his mind when he applied it to the Noah character. Yeah. Because he wasn't about to follow this up with uh, Abraham. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, to be, right, to be sure, you know. Um, yeah, so in, in, in that particular level, in, and by the way, I, I, I think you can agree, though, that Crow does a... a with what he's asked to do, I think he's done a really effective job. He, he, he's good. I, okay. I don't have any particular complaints. I, I'm just looking at kind of the heights of performance yeah. of, uh, 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 of Ellen Burstyn and Natalie Portman and uh, 
uh, Hugh Jackman and not seeing Crow working at that level. Mm -hmm. Probably the best performance is uh, Emma Watson. Uh, yes, she does who, great. You know, is, who you know is, is a character again, not not from the story, but uh, you know she provides far more personality than any of Noah's actual kids do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's uh, oh, and yeah, that's true, including the ironically named Ham, who is yes, a very ha- understated performance. Ha- yes, ha- Ham. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then what's uh, you have uh, the. Uh, the leader of the uh, kind of the horde, Tubal Cain, uh, played by Ray Winstone, who again just is is now stowawayed on the Ark, just waiting for his moment to create havoc. Like, uh... <laughs> so you felt a little bit like the the um, killer from Sunshine, a little like oh why? Oh why, yeah, there we're you, there's he again. A, yeah. Is there enough? Isn't there enough problems on this arc that you've got to have a have a have a boogeyman on there? Right. But but I like I really like that I, because I really like that as well because because Tubal is meant to be in his own way he's he's a statement of like he's the ultimate statement of man superiority which like or man claiming his own superiority mm-hmm. that like he will that like he says I will define what's right I will define what's right and wrong and the way he tempts. The way he tempts Ham, and what Lee, and I think it explains Ham's exile in a real later in the movie in a really interesting way. You know, Ham has to leave because he has seen the darkness within himself, and like so. Actually, in a way, he does the kind of exile mm-hmm. that that Noah was asking for all of humanity, but he's but Ham sees that in himself. Mm-hmm. So I think that was I think that was brought about uh, pretty. I think it was brought about pretty nicely. Um, uh, uh, on that, like, and 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 Tubal Cain comes. Ac- One thing I just want to bring up is that, like, he is that he's that he's a suitable rival for Noah, like, because he has a philosophy and a worldview that is wrong. That you can see that's being wrong. You know, you know, like, but Noah's is you can have problems with his worldview, but it's very clear that they both have a philosophy right. mm-hmm. and they both follow that philosophy. To wherever it leads, however dark that might be, right? Um, also, I'm kind of left thinking, like, man, the name Cain has kind of got a nice bad rap throughout the ages. I mean, the only two which I have found have been successful to surpass that has been Michael Cain and Cain from Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it leads to another, uh, like, the question is, like, the, the three, the brothers are Cain, Abel, and Seth. Mm-hmm. But Set is, if I'm not mistaken, like the Egyptian, another name for like the Egyptian god of evil, right? Um, Seth with a th okay. in the Bible, and I think the Egyptian Set is S-E-T. Set. Okay, so it's not quite. However, I believe that like, well, well, the conception in Christian evil is a snake, mm-hmm. and it's kind of really there's an interesting touch, which in in Noah where like where the lineage passes through a snake skin. And one thing that, like, good lord, like, black swan had a white swan and a black swan, but it's almost like, like, the snake in the Garden of Eden had a light snake and a darker snake, right? Because oh, because of the shedding of the skin? Yeah, when the, yeah. When the snake sheds mm-hmm. its skin in the temptation myth, as shown in Aronofsky, it's a much darker snake. And yet, so I find it really interesting that this lineage passes through the snake skin, mm-hmm. this, this skin which was part of the thing that cast humanity out of the garden of eden 
and then it's passed around. And then there's a really fascinating moment at the end where they're they're out and trying to be fruitful and multiply, but but um, um, Noah I believe gives his blessing to the grandkids mm-hmm. uh, for this very very complicated family relationship that's soon to follow them. <laughs> <laughs> but he does this by taking the snakeskin and wrapping it around his arm in a way that to me kind of evokes this. Uh, ritual among some Jewish communities of taking a piece of black, uh, uh, black uh, cloth and rubbing and ru- putting that around your arm. Right, that, that's called tefillin. Okay, um, and it's uh, part of it's, it's a prayer custom where you wrap uh, wrap it around your arm and attached to it is a box that holds uh, some of the uh, some biblical passages that you would place on your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I was, I was really intrigued that you're, you, I, I wonder if that was like a similar kind of way of like making a, you know, of having a mark and having a mark be imprinted on your, put put upon your body. Yeah, it's. I, I'm not sure. I didn't make that connection, but it's an interesting one. And again, with Aronofsky, uh, having a Jewish background and having that, uh, you know, we saw the tefillin in in Pi. Um, I suppose it's possible. It, it is a little strange, though, to consider creating that out of the out of the snake, which is meant yeah. to represent sin and evil. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's an interesting possibility. Yeah. So, so ultimately, like my 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 kind of view upon Noah is that it is a little bit of a step down for for Aronofsky. While I think he he was still successful at getting his vision out there said vision like is kind of both at odds and has to build so much off of a very sketchy and simpler story Mm -hmm. that it does veer in times to kind of Lord of the Rings like territory. And, and, and there's ultimately not enough of a hook on this fable to get into the kind of psychological and uh, psychological and um, social and internal and visceral concerns that have been his stock in trade through throughout his throughout his career. Um, I do want to bring I do want to bring up like just a couple of minor points that that uh, just uh, uh, that come to my attention on there. One is where Tubal Cain is is a very built guy, and there's and unlike unlike um, Noah and his family who are vegetarians, they want to eat meat to right. go strong. And so there's a moment where. <laughs> Tubal Cain is a big burly guy. He's passing by um, a, a whole slab of meat, which I hearken back to Mickey Rourke work in the Delhi Counter. <laughs> this is just a consequence of seeing his films, but you get these these connections managed to, man- to show up in even the most tiniest of places. But I want to give also credit to the editor, um, uh, uh, the editor of the film, like um, who is this um, Andrew Weisblum, who has been his editor since the re- who has been Aronofsky's editor since the Wrestler, like. Like, his editors have done a masterful job, and there's two sequences I want to really point out here that, that deserve attention if you guys do see Noah. One is which there's, to get the wood to build the ark, like some waters of life emerge, and you see this river, and through this, like, five-minute sequence, you just see hundreds and hundreds of images as the waters of the river are building out through this landscape, and they mm-hmm. work around mountains and gullies, work around mountains and gullies and ravines and mining areas, and... And everywhere it goes, the banks of the river are flowing out with, or are starting to teem with life. With, with this, trees in particular to make the, the wood for the ark. That's right. Mm-hmm. But, like, but you just see the passageway of this. And, and it finally gets to an occasion where 
the uh, two white doves notice this river, mm-hmm. and that's what causes the initial set of migration. But it's this really stunning sequence of what appears to be thousands and thousands of landscape images as the river of water makes its way through mm-hmm. the landscape. And there's a moment where, like, Tubal Cain just talks about the nature of war and the nature of how a man can go and uh, take over for another, uh, take over another man's property. And it's done in a kind of nice appendix to the apes bone in 2001 to me because you see in silhouette as one man uses a rock Mm -hmm. to club another and then through a series of incredibly fast images the rock becomes like a rock becomes like a a a club becomes a sword become uh, becomes a cutlass becomes a scimitar becomes all these weapons and then the creature the silhouette hurls at the other silhouette and it it cuts to become like from a from a from a a rock to um, an arrowhead to a full arrow to a uh, like to a mi- to like kind of a missile like object, and it just like and and the, and the uniforms become looking like revolutionary uniforms, in the silhouetted figure who's being attacked. So it's literally showing like the flip book of the progress. Like what is missing when the bone is flown into the uh-huh. air and becomes an orbiting satellite? Right. <laughs> you get in in this wonderful like Prince Ahmed like silhouette, like the whole in between nature of it. So so Aronofsky still does these really wonderful touches in uh, uh, in Noah that make it that make it worth watching just for these great details he can put into it. At least that's that's my impression to it. Now, now, now he has a movie that's supposed to be coming out like this year, called Mother with an exclamation point. Right, and like he's Aronofsky's keeping it very close to the vest. As so far as we can tell, it's about be about like a couple who's trying to have a tranquil existence, and they get a couple of unexpected, unexpected visitors. It's kind of notable in that like it has a really big cast. Of, uh, of, of some great female performers, including Jennifer Lawrence, Kristen Wiig, Michelle Pfeiffer. And this is actually going to notable that it will actually have music from, uh, uh, from Johan Johansson. This will be the first effort that will not feature, um, that will not feature um, Clint Mansell, his longtime collaborator of all his previous films. And this is also one that will not have Mark Margolis, who played Saul Robinson from Pi and has managed to find his way into every other, every other film sets. Well, I guess the question is: Will uh, Will Aronofsky uh, continue on with uh, with his themes and with uh, the kind of movies that uh, we've gotten to know him from, or is this the start of a new direction? Yeah, that that's right. And like, I mean, yeah, I've like over the course of these like the six films that he has, like it's been pretty amazing uh, to see how like. His themes, his concerns have managed to manifest itself uh, like all throughout these films. And and he explores them in different ways, explores different angles, like things that things that are beneficial to some characters, like end up being their undoing in in others, you know. And one thing that like he does, which I think is really remarkable, is he deals with religion and religious concepts seriously. 
he is does a real uh, he is very thoughtful and questioning on different aspects of of faith and belief and like and uh, and religion's place in society and the way people place different meanings upon their own religious beliefs you know and that thing is, i think is an attitude that places him considerably um makes him distinct from even other auteurs of his uh, generation very true the one he might uh, of his generation yes the the uh there are other directors who have taken on kind of religious subjects, but uh, among his peers, this, this is distinguishing. Yeah. And so, and so it, this like kind of leads, leads me to think like to have an, the uh, question we can ask is what is like the three movies that like try for a similar angle, try to like look at religion, not in like a proselytizing way or not in a like, not in a directly critical way, but literally explore what those th- what those mean. You know, I think uh, uh, Aronofsky's done really, I think, really quite well in like exploring this, even through Noah, definitely in Pi, and and um, and even in some elements of like um, the Wrestler, and definitely the Fountain. But um, so, like, what would be like three films that would uh, that would do something similar or equivalent? Like for me, like the three that like come to mind. Like one would be is a film like um, by Abel Ferrara um, in 1992 called Bad Lieutenant, um, and it features like Harvey Keitel as a as a very corrupt, drug abusing, gambling uh, cop, but he is clearly railing against, but he's clearly railing against some some internal desolation in his in his life, and and there is a. a um, a case where a, a nun was abused and she has a level of forgiveness that he's unable to rectify. And the, the rest of the course of the movie is how does, how does this guy who's had his life up in depravity up in this point go and like try and find a, see that there's a world with religion and him that both can exist in this simultaneously. Um, like, and Keitel is an absolutely fearless in this and like, and, and goes to some just, amazing like places in his performance and in his and in his in his character uh, like and uh, uh it's just a, a riveting and a stunning uh, achievement i think um yeah i agree and it might be Keitel's best performance yeah in yeah. a career that's full of really <laughs> remarkable uh performances and, and the re- and the, the 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 idea of faith and the where catholicism is is brought into it is is fascinating here because it's in a film that uh seems to not have room for that kind of uh yes religious yes yeah, yeah. And, and and like like my second choice is a film that like that it's not even that it's room it's that you don't even think that such films would even even broach the subject is a it's a um a film called prisoners uh by uh, dennis uh, villanueva i think is how we pronounce it and it stars as um found it has fountain star hugh jackman plays as a father who is a as a as a, a very dedicated Christian, dedicated family man, and he's even a carpenter, who finds it like his children have been abducted, and he knows who's he knows who's done it, and and grabs him and gets him to try to confess, but it turns out his assumptions may not be, his assumptions may not be correct, and. Like within like the basic story about it is a very is kind of almost like a pulp thriller of like children in peril, but 
among it, uh, but it all is very much also trafficking in this idea of like of how um, how people um, men especially go and define themselves in the world. Like and and when you say that you're a, when you say you're a Christian, like but but you want to go and but you you need to uh, protect your kids. And so where where does this uh, where does your faith like where does your faith and 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 your own and your own family's safety like where does that coincide and where does that collide and it looks at those in a really in really interesting ways like there's a scene where they there's a scene where he goes and like tries to say the lord's prayer and yet he can't get to the forgive us those who trespass against us and it's a lot about how like this kind of religion can be used for for beneficial and and um and less beneficial means and he has a counterpart named Loki who's, who has certain hieroglyphics on his hands in a Masonic symbol. And so in a way, it's also a clash of different belief systems in a, in a, in a, in a very fascinating way, all in a genre piece. <laughs> and then my number one is a film that came out very recently, like, and it's Scorsese's Silence. Scorsese, Scorsese, I think, may have made the ultimate statement upon what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to follow your beliefs? What does it mean to promote your beliefs? And, and the responsibilities that you have for people who are following your beliefs. It asks these questions in a very deep, thorough manner, but does not go and give easy answers, but makes them really compelling to think about. And, and it, it, there's a level of seriousness and dedication to it that even outstrips Scorsese's usual methods because he... He, d he eschews his flashy camera techniques and his use of music to make a very silent, studied film that looks on that particular subject of faith through like um, priests trying to go and convert um, people in feudal Japan towards, um, uh, towards Christianity. It's an extraordinary film and such a, a return to form uh, for Scorsese and, uh, in my opinion, is his best since Goodfellas. Uh, although, while doing it, managed to be, as you say, nothing like his other films. Exactly right. So, Brad, do you have, like, um, a three entries? Sure, I, I've got a few. Uh, one of awesome. which uh, is also from somebody who one would not expect a religious message from, uh, Mr. Lars von Trier. Uh, who, um, whose you know, re recent films seem to be uh, trying to see how far he can push uh, shock value. But back near the beginning of his career, he did what I think remains his best work, uh, which is Breaking the Waves. Yes. Uh, the story uh, of, of a young woman whose uh, husband, who, whose new husband is uh, severely injured on uh, in, in an oil rig, and uh, in either his delirium or in, on, from the hospital bed, he uh, encourages her to take lovers so that she can experience the kind of life that he can't uh, give her anymore, uh, being paralyzed. And uh, as she goes through these travails, she uh, is holding on to a very innocent faith, that even as uh, the world around her is proving cruel and, and uh, you know, sh her faith uh, stands strong. And uh, there are elements uh, that I won't reveal uh, near the end that uh, 
takes this uh, idea and takes it to a place that I don't think anyone watching the film without prior information would expect it to go. Yeah, oh my God, that's such a great choice. Like, em- Emily Watson is like one of the most self-immolating examples of faith ever put on screen. Something I think to rival the passion of Joan of Arc, I think. I, I agree completely. I, uh, her performance alone is, is reason enough uh, to see the film. Uh, my second choice uh, takes uh, kind of the, the opposite bookend as, as uh, faith is something to be abused and, and misplaced and, and turned into something ugly, uh, which is uh, in the form of a fantastic uh, semi-horror film uh, called The Wicker Man. Uh, which uh, I am not yeah. referring to the more recent remake with Nicolas Cage. Not I'm the referring bees one? Not, not the, the bees, bees one? one. No, no, no bees in this. We have the original from 1973, directed by Robin Hardy and starring the great Christopher Lee. And uh, he is... Uh, um, uh, there. There's a, uh, a, a police officer... Um, Play by I forgot the actor's name. He was Edward the Equalizer, Woodward. Edward Wood. Yes, and uh, he is, is a man of faith, and he is heading into a uh, what he thinks is a standard murder investigation that uh, that may have uh, pagan elements to it, and uh, here uh, the both uh, on really both both sides. Of the equation, uh, faith takes uh, much more beating. <laughs> yes, that's for yeah. that's for sure. I mean, I, I love the part where like Edward Woodward is such a great fish out of water, mm-hmm. and he there's one point where he's aghast at a pagan ritual involving naked ladies jumping across a fire, and he takes this criticism to Christopher Lee, who who very reasonably points out. Well, if they were wearing clothes, the clothes would get burned. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so oh, great choice. So my final choice is uh, is a, a, an amazing achievement from one of my favorite uh, directors, uh, Krzyzlowski. Uh, which is uh, the Decalogue. Don't which, you mean ten achievements? Ten achievements, because it's ten separate films that were originally broadcast on Polish television in one-hour segments. It was also released theatrically, so they, they do count as films. But each of these ten films correspond to one of the Ten Commandments, but not in an obvious way. So it's not like there's... Um, uh, there's there there's some some of the films can encompass more than one commandment and you're not always clear on which commandment is being referred to but what is happening is uh Kislowski is dealing with these huge uh concepts on a smaller story level and uh does so very successfully and raises a, a lot of questions about how we live our lives. And uh, it doesn't matter what, sh- or what order you watch them in, uh, it, it, but, but like all of his work, it's, it's just something that uh, if you see, uh, it, 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 it's something you won't be able to see in any other way. Yes, um, Krzyzlowski uh, is an incredibly thoughtful filmmaker, one who like really looks at the implications of the basic premises of his story. And the Decalogue, I kind of might be his ultimate achievement in doing that exact angle. You know, like even more than his Colors trilogy, because like 
he looks at what it means of thou shalt not commit adultery, they shall not steal, and so forth, but looks at those in a completely unique way. One, mm-hmm, For sure, uh, although I am uh, a huge fan of the Colors trilogy and, and do think that is his masterwork. Ah, well, yes, right. It, right, I mean, it's... I, I think that, like, in the Decalogue, like, his idea of, like, putting in an interesting spin on all this story, I mean, and sheer, for the sheer number of ten, you know, in some incredibly cosmic development, what is the one from... My favorite one at this point might be the First Commandment, You Shall Have No Gods Before Me. Yes. Which the plot, what's the plot of that one? That is a, uh, involves a computer. As that's, a, <laughs> that's right. I see where you're going with right. that. Uh, it involves trust in a computer program right. to, mm-hmm. to predict behavior and whether that is successful or not. Something that eerily harkens back to something that, the, that, Max, from, uh, uh, that Max Cohen from Pi might himself wonder about. Okay. And and to to take this religious stuff and bring and and bring that home in a particular way, I want to just go just recite a particular passage that just really struck me on um in the Bible. It's from it's from uh one it's from one Kings like um uh chapter um uh chapter seven and verse twenty three. Um, this passage results in like um um uh, a a tank of uh, a a tank getting created getting built. And he talks about the dimensions of that set tank. Uh, as it goes here on uh, the passage, uh, then he made the tank of cast metal, uh, 10 cubits across from brim to brim, completely around. It was five cubits high, and it measures 30 cubits in circumference. So what that says, basically, is that, um, uh, that the diameter of it is 10, cube, uh, 10 cubits, and the circumference, the distance around the circle, is 30. That, the, the difference of a circumference versus diameter is the ratio given by pi. And in the passage we ju- I just quoted, that's 30 divided by 10, or 3. <laughs> and so it just, like, hits me that, like, that you have a reference to pi in the Bible. <laughs> when he makes, when, when, Aaron, it just hits me in a weird way how Aronofsky, in his movie pie, uses math to try to do right by God and religion, whereas the book on the Bible <laughs> takes pie and does wrong by math. <laughs> 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 like, it's weird how that works. <laughs> I, I mean, I hope that like this, um, uh, uh, that you guys, that you guys listening have enjoyed with our like excursion out through the works of Darren Aronofsky and that, uh, that we've given you some stuff to think about his movies and, and some inclinations to check out um, this or that film. I have to say for myself, he has an amazing track record. And despite how little we know about Mother, I am I'm, uh, going to see his movies, I'm uh, going to check out his movie uh, without any further information because he has uh, been just as much of a remarkable and rewarding filmmaker for me. And yeah, he is one of those uh, must-see directors. But uh, after seeing uh, all of his films in 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 short order, I may need to do a cleanse with a hard day's night. So. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, yes. How many Michelle Gondry films do you think it would take to get the heavy topics? Right. Washed so away? we'll we'll go outside, get some fresh air, and, uh, and solve the 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 problems of the universe in our next podcast. That's, that's right. Uh, which which will um uh, which will if all predictions if if all goes well will be in the. Um, uh, uh, mysterious outer space realm of Australia. <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, if you have uh, input for us, if you've enjoyed the show, if you have any suggestions or anything uh, you want to talk about, please contact us. We are at Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you on Facebook or on Twitter or any other places that we reside. Right. We have a website over at directorsclubpodcast.com and we can be found on uh, we can be found on iTunes over at the Directors Club Podcast. Um, and in, in addition, like I have a um, uh, site where I put on my occasional uh, ramblings and you can find on WordPress and you can find that at uh, cinemal2001.wordpress.com. That's uh uh, C-I-N-E-M-A-L 2001.wordpress dot uh, com uh, So um, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for listening guys and uh, hope to go catch you over on the next episode of the Director's Club Bye Bye